As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. All right. Hello, tow listeners. Kurt here. That silence is missed sales. Now, why? It's because you haven't met Shopify, at least until now. Now that's success, as sweet as a solved equation. Join me in trading that silence for success with Shopify. It's like some unified field theory of business. Whether you're a bedroom inventor or a global game changer, Shopify smooths your path. From a garage-based hobby to a bustling e-store, Shopify navigates all sales channels for you. With Shopify powering 10% of all U.S. e-commerce and fueling your ventures in over 170 countries, your business has global potential. And their stellar support is as dependable as a law of physics. So don't wait. Launch your business with Shopify. Shopify has award-winning service and has the internet's best converting checkout. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories. All lowercase, that's shopify.com slash theories. Carlo Rovelli is a world-renowned theoretical physicist and is one of the main developers of loop quantum gravity, the main academic competitor to string theory. Click on the timestamp in the description if you'd like to skip this intro. It's rare that I feel such a connection with someone from the get-go, and I hope that you can feel the warmth of the relation between us as well. Today, speaking of relations, we cover the argument that relations are more fundamental than that which is being related. We also cover the only two interpretations of quantum mechanics that are consistent, at least according to Carlo, the nature of time and its ostensible arrow, as well as how science supervenes on what's decidedly not scientific per se. That is a largely philosophical conversation. There's only been one book that I've consistently recommended on this channel, and that is Ian McGilchrist's Master and His Emissary, and now I'm adding a second, and that's Carlo Rovelli's Order of Time. Links to both of those will be in the description. For those of you who are new to this channel, my name is Kurt Jaimungle. I'm a filmmaker with a background in mathematical physics dedicated to the explication of what are called theories of everything from a theoretical physics perspective, but as well as delineating the possible connection consciousness has to the fundamental laws of nature, provided these laws exist at all and are knowable to us. If you enjoy witnessing and or engaging in real-time conversation with others on the topics of psychology, neurobiology, physics, consciousness, free will, God, and so on, then do visit the Discord and the subreddit. The links for those are in the description. There's also a link to the Patreon in the description. That is patreon.com slash Kurt 
as the patrons and the sponsors are the only reason I'm able to do this full-time. It would be near impossible for me to have conversations like this with any fidelity, with any depth on topics like consciousness, loop quantum gravity, geometric unity that's coming up, string theory, non-neural bioelectric manipulation, and so on, if not for the patrons and the sponsors. Thank you, and again, that link is patreon.com slash Speaking of sponsors, there are two. The first sponsor is Algo. Algo is an end-to-end supply chain optimization software company with software that helps business users optimize sales and operations, planning to avoid stockouts, reduce returns and inventory write-downs while reducing inventory investment. It's a supply chain AI that drives smart ROI. Headed by Amjad Hussein, who's been a huge supporter of this podcast since near its inception. Now, Amjad has a podcast on AI and consciousness, and if you'd like to support this channel, that is the Toe channel, then please visit the description and support his channel, as doing so supports this indirectly. The second sponsor is Brilliant. Brilliant illuminates the soul of mathematics, science, and engineering through these bite-sized interactive learning experiences. Brilliant's courses explore the laws that shape our world. It elevates math and science from something to be feared to a delightful experience of guided discovery. You can even learn group theory, which is what's being referenced when you hear that the standard model is contingent on U1 cross SU2 cross SU3. Those are technically called Lie groups and those are local symmetries. Visit brilliant.org slash toe, that is T-O-E, and I think you'll be greatly surprised at the ease at which you can comprehend subjects you had previously had a difficult time grokking. Don't stop before four lessons. Thank you, and enjoy this curiously metaphysical conversation with Carlo Ravelli. Yeah, when you asked me, I looked, I, I, I decided to watch one, uh, and then I said I liked it. Oh, thank you. The physicist I knew, I think. But I appreciate the, the width of your, the, the, um, of your questions and, uh, and the fact that you went uh, in detail, but in a, in a good uh, uh, um uh, middle ground sort of uh, you, you seem to know what you were talking about which was yeah i seem nice. to i'm gl- i'm great at pl- pretending <laughs> <laughs> so professor why don't you explain your relational view your interpretation of quantum mechanics uh wonderful thank you kurt for for having me here uh first of all please don't call me professor everybody calls me carlo and that's how i feel uh comfortable with it. All right, so relational quantum mechanics uh, is uh, um, the way I think uh, uh, it's, uh, I think it's more interesting to try to understand quantum mechanics. There are, uh, as you know, Kurt, there are a number of uh, interpretations of quantum mechanics out there. I find them all interesting. Um, I think that none of them is wrong. Um, I think they all, each one of them is right. but each one has a cost, a price to pay. And the question is, uh, are we ready to pay this price? Is it useful to pay this price to, to go ahead and better understand the world? And uh, uh, I think the, the relational quantum mechanics, which I'm going to describe in a moment, uh, uh, also have a price, like everything, a philosophical price. Okay, uh, But I think it's the best price to pay. So if, we, if we buy that, then we understand the world better. Um, the the mystery of quantum mechanics can be can be expressed in different manners. Um, one way of, of of presenting it is that what the what the theory gives us uh, is what we see when we look, when we see when we measure. It gives predictions for measurement. 
uh, and that's the way it's it's uh, it's formulated in in textbooks. Uh, textbook quantum mechanics talks about the observer. It talk about the measurement apparatus. They talk about uh, um, about the outcome of the of, of the measurement. Now, uh, this is okay if you want to use it. In fact, a lot of people use quantum mechanics these terms and a uh, very happy period. There's no no question after that. But of course, it's not okay uh, if we after we have realized, quantum mechanics is 100 years old, after we have realized that uh, uh, quantum mechanics is actually the best theory we have for everything, for galaxies, for star, for, for uh, structure formation in the universe, uh, for what happened inside the sun. So it, it's how we want to think about the world uh, at, at the most fundamental physical level that we have access today. And then what the hell is an apparatus and an observer doing into that. There are no observers in the sun or, or in the early universe when star formed. So something is missing, obviously, in the standard textbook presentation of quantum mechanics, which is uh, who is observer? Uh, what, what, is an, what is a measurement? And one way of saying that is that uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the standard presentation of quantum mechanics, there are two postulates, two assumptions which appear to be contradictory to one another. One is that um, if you don't look, you have a quantum system, it evolves in a way uh, which is described by the Schrodinger equation or by unitary evolution, uh, things change. If you look, there is a different postulate, which is a projection postulate, that says that the state does not evolve in a Schrodinger evolution, but it just jumps. Um, and, and the visual way of viewing this is that uh, uh, a particle uh, like an electron is described like a wave that satisfies the Schrodinger equation, so a wave diffuses in, in space. But when you look at it, you see in a point. So the wave bloop, collapses in a point. And when does it collapse? When there's a measurement. And when there's a measurement? When observer and apparatus uh, measure it. But there are no observers apparatus inside the sun. There are no observer apparatus inside the distant galaxy or, or in all the cases we use quantum mechanics. So that's the problem. And uh, there are uh, many solutions on the table. Um, some people think that, uh, you know, it's always waves, so the particle never goes to a point. And uh, in reality, what happens is that we ourselves are waves and we split in many different copies of ourselves. This is a many world interpretation. And others. Now, the relational and I'll finally come to your, to, to your question. The relational interpretation is the idea that we can make sense of that by simply thinking that what happens between the particle and the observer, the particle and the measurement apparatus, is generic and is not because of special property of the observer or the measuring apparatus. It's just what happened between any system and any other system in the universe. So every time Two systems. We describe the world uh, by splitting it in systems, physical systems, okay. like the sun, like a particle, a molecule, uh, the earth, uh, you, me. These are all systems from the perspective of physicists. Every time two of these interact, so exchange something, uh, one, so to say, measure the other. So if this is a particle, when it interacts with me, the particle collapses in a point, has a position. Okay, but this is not true. This is only true 
the particles of position only with respect to this system, not with respect to the rest of the universe. So if somebody else in the universe, uh, it's, uh, 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 it's, uh, it's later interacting with a particle and this observer here doesn't have to take into account this collapse. So the collapse and the unitary evolution are always are both true, good postulate for describing what happened in the universe, it just refer to different uh, systems. The ones which are directly interacting, what is relevant is the projective postulate, the ones which are not involved interacting, which still may have an interesting of, you know, computing what's going to happen next in the interaction to them, um, for them is relevant the unitary evolution postulate. So the this is it. I mean, this solves completely uh, the, the quantum mechanical problems because uh, uh, now we know what is a what is a system, and now what is an observer. Nothing special. All systems are uh, systems. All systems are observable, and now we know when to use one postulate and the other. Uh, the price to pay is that the particle being in a position, it's only relative to the system it has interacted with, not relative to something else. With respect to something else, it's still spread around still a wave everywhere. So all the variable taking values are always relative, relative to a system. So this means that when we describe the world, uh, we describe the world uh, giving values to variable. I mean, this microphone is here, that color on the screen is red, uh, you know, the, the sun is there. These are all variables that, uh, values that variables take, uh, the color, the position, the these, if you, if you buy the relational interpretation of quantum mechanics, they are not absolute properties of a system. They are properties of the system with respect to me, or with respect to this chair, not me as a human being, uh, me as, as a physical system. So that's a relational. Relational because uh, uh, the suggestion here is don't think at reality as systems with properties, rather Think at reality as a system that has properties where they interact with something else, only when they interact with something else, and relatively to this something else. That's a solution, a possible solution of the quantum mechanic puzzle. Um, the cost of this is accepting uh, this weakened realism, so to say. The world is not made by a substance with properties, uh, it's made by interacting pieces. Uh, uh, and the pieces of properties only when they interact. Okay, so firstly, let's remove the word observer and say interaction because observer seems to imply in people's mind a human being, essentially, or something conscious. Okay. Exactly. So there's that. And then what I'm wondering is, let's say, so I have a bedroom here, and I don't know what's going on. Pretend it's much farther away, and I haven't interacted with it. So something's going on in that bedroom. Now, to those people who are interacting in this bedroom right now, their their properties are defined. They're, they've collapsed their wave function in a sense. Okay. That's correct. Now, is there, and let's say they've come up with some value and it says it could be A or B and they've come up with value A for some, like the yeah. heads, heads on a coin. Now, is there a reason that necessarily if I was to interact with them, that it consistently comes up with the same answer? Or is that not necessarily the case? Um, good. Uh, yes, uh, there, there is a reason. 
and uh, uh, um, but but one has has to be careful in in, in formulating things properly pro properly, namely, um, if you uh, l l let's see exactly what what it means. Uh, suppose you yourself measure that property and, and you found A, and then you interact with them and ask them, hey, what have you seen? Then for sure, you would uh, get something consistent. Uh, this is the precise meaning of uh, seeing the same thing. In other words, uh, uh, you can compare what what you have seen and what the, the, uh, the people in the room have uh, uh, seen by talking to them or by asking them or by measuring them. Uh, but this interaction is quantum mechanical. So uh, this interaction is uh, itself a physical interaction, not outside physics. You, you cannot out, go outside the world and somehow uh, 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 cheat physics circumvent and say, oh, physics is not looking, let me ask you what you've seen. That's you cannot do. That's the point. So, um, yes, there is consistency. And why am I am so careful in saying that? Because uh, quantum mechanics is tricky. As you know, if you measure the position of a particle and then you measure the momentum, you destroy the information about the position. Immediately after you measure the position, again, it's not the previous one. So by measuring the momentum, the position is affected. So you have to be careful, because if you ask these people a, a question which is like the momentum toward the position, you might be destroying uh, some of the, uh, of, of the properties, and it might be therefore uh, neither true nor false that the value um, is A. Like when you when you do a double slit interference, if you measure the interference, you cannot ask anymore which way the particle has gone through, which slit the particle has gone through. So by asking when, there is no answer to the one, to the other one. So uh, the point is that when you when you compare what two different observables have seen, you have to be careful that there are these interference effects that might create uh, a a different. Uh, uh, my in, my block the possibility of identifying exactly what what the two have seen. So as long as you keep asking questions, uh, which are not like position moment that don't destroy previous information, everything is consistent. Every observer sees the same world. With regard to these relations, I've heard you say quite a few times relations are what are more fundamental than the things itself. However, to me, as I'm having a difficult time understanding that because to me, a relation presupposes things. You can't have a relation without having things to have a relationship with, unless you have a relation between relations, and then it just keeps occurring infinitely. So, so how is one supposed to think of relationships as fundamental? See, even mathematically, the way that I'm thinking about this right now, in model theory, you have a signature, and then relations... You need an arity function. So how many are are going to be compared? How and then what is being compared? Are, I would call the things, and then the relation needs those things. So help someone as confused as myself understand what is meant by relations are more fundamental than the things. 
how is it not presupposing things per se? Yeah, uh, well, it depends what we mean by thing. Uh, that's uh, that's a subtlety. Namely, um, if uh, uh, we, we are talking about quantum mechanics, so you're, you're not talking about general philosophical view of words. So I, I'm, I'm I'm just saying what this interpretation of quantum mechanics requires us to do. All right. So uh, in this individual quantum mechanic, the basic notions are uh, a system, systems. Okay. So I'm not denying, it's not an interpretation that denies that we describe the world in terms of systems. Okay. If you want to call a system a thing, that's fine. Those are things. Okay. Uh, this is a system, a, a pencil. Okay. Uh, and then the relation of between systems. Uh, things that happen between systems in which uh, a pension has a color with respect to me. Okay. Now, why is a relation? Uh, because this this uh, this pen is is yellow. But what does it exactly mean that is yellow? Yellow is not a property of the pen by itself. It's a property of the of the pen that depends on the light that bounces it, the interaction with the light, and the the the, the peculiar. Uh, um, uh, uh, detectors in my eyes, uh, which uh, do not distinguish many frequencies, but do distinguish some frequency. And so, in terms of this space of colors, which is not outside in the world, is in my head. Uh, I call yellow uh, the way this pencil interacts with the light and with me. So, the being yellow of the of of the pencil, it's really something we only understand. If we bring into the picture also the light and me and my brain and the specific uh, three kind of detectors of light in my eyes and so on and so forth. Good. So this this is an example of a relation. To be yellow is a, it's a relation sense. Now, uh, why I said well depend what we mean by a thing because if by a thing you mean a, a an entity with a set of properties, okay. This is a pen, is here, has zero velocity, is oriented uh, up and down with a, with a point down. Uh, uh, it's a certain thickness uh, and uh, uh, a certain mass, a certain weight, and, uh, um, and, and a certain position, so on and so forth. If by thing you mean the system with a, a given set of properties that it has, then in relation to quantum mechanics, that is wrong. Because all these properties do not belong to the to the pen. It belongs to the interaction of the pen and whatever it's outside. So in relation to quantum mechanics, there are systems and, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and relation to a system. The properties of a system are all the relations. Uh, but what we, when we describe the world, we're talking about the properties. Uh, we're not, not, not talking about the systems. Uh, we are saying, well, the moon is there, a position. The position is relational with respect to something else. Uh, all properties are relational in, 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 in quantum mechanics. So it's not that uh, there are only relations in, in relation to quantum mechanics. It's that uh, uh, systems have no properties unless uh, relational, pro uh, except relational properties. There are no properties by themselves. Having said yes, one is tempted uh, and, and, and many philosophers want to do that, and I have some sympathy for them, uh, to make one step farther. Uh, Michel Bitbold is a good example that uh, his immediate reaction to relational quantum mechanics said, well, why don't you take one step farther and say, well, for, forget the system. The systems are just the, 
uh, intersections, so to say, between, between relations. And you say this is hard for you to conceive because it's a relation required to think. That's true. But, uh, uh, you know, think of a network, a net, the net of a fisherman. You can say there's a set of nodes attached by little links, fine, but you can say it's just the links. Uh, the nodes come just as a peculiar point where uh, the links are attached to one another. So uh, it's the same with a graph, more abstractly. You can think as a, you can define a graph in two ways. You can say it's a set of points, and then relation between the point. I mean, there is a there is a link between two points. That's a relation or not. Or you can say it's a set of links, and then you say who is who is uh, which one of the link joined mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. other. So you can start from the point of start from the links to, to, to think of a graph. And so in that sense, you might want to uh, just view the systems as just nodes uh, of, of networks. After all, uh, we never see the moon, we see its properties. So our direct contact with the world is through uh, the properties of this object from which we construct the object. Some philosopher might want to go all that way uh, I have some sympathy, but I don't think that the relation interpretation of quantum mechanics uh, requires that. Relation between quantum mechanics is in terms of systems and the uh, relational properties between the systems. No, okay, so you said that we can describe a system or a system of let's, a graph, let's say, in terms of treating the edges as primary or the vertices as primary, and then you can infer Correct. That. Okay, so exactly. is there a reason that it seems like because they're interchangeable, you could place emphasis on anyone. Why is it that you're choosing, or why is it that it's better to place emphasis on the relations rather than the nodes, the edges rather than I think the vertices? We can, I think we can do both. I think I think both are doable as far as quantum mechanics is uh, uh, it's concerned. Um, I. I think the key point is not there are only relations. The key point is that properties are only relational. I see, I see, I see. So how is one is one not supposed to even visualize, like I'm going to ask, how is one supposed to visualize this non-property-laden node? Because as soon as I can visualize, I feel like I've assigned a property to it. So what is meant by this? Exactly. What is meant by what's being related is it and is it physical? <laughs> what is meant by physicality? Like what what the heck is it? Now also, by the way, you can answer as if it's the spin network. Like you I don't know, is it that? Is that what you're ultimately claiming or is it something even more fundamental? You're unsure of how, mathematically how it looks like. Take this question any way you like. Uh well, uh, thanks for bringing up the spin networks. Um no, I, I think one one thing is interpretation of quantum mechanics, and and the different the spin network come from a different story, which is quantum gravity. Uh, now, uh, let's say on the interpretation of quantum mechanics, which is what you're asking about, uh, there's one important point: quantum mechanics uh, is not a theory about the world; it's it's a collection of theories about the world. There is a quantum mechanics of a particle. There is a quantum mechanics of a standard model. There is a quantum mechanic of gravity, which is quantum gravity. Uh, you know, there's a quantum mechanic of the harmonic oscillator, there's a quantum mechanic of the molecule, there's a quantum mechanics of the early universe, 
quantum mechanics of the of of the of the what happened inside the sun. So uh, quantum mechanics is not a list of of things out there in the world. Uh, to to have a list of things out there in the world, you should choose a particular quantum theory. Okay, not quantum theory in general, but one particular quantum theory. So quantum mechanics says, okay, what is quantum mechanics? Quantum mechanics says that any theory of the world, okay, can be formulated in this way. There's some non-commutative variable, or maybe there's a Hilbert space, there's some mathematics, the, the structure of the mathematics. Uh, then you have to say uh, which variables, which uh, Hamiltonian, uh, which uh, things you, you describe. In that sense, um, quantum mechanics is like classical mechanics. Classical mechanics is not theory of particles. It's theory of anything, of, of, of a pendulum, of particles, of the electric field, of whatever. It's just, a, then it's just a general framework within which then you have to specify your variables, phase space, Lagrangian, the equation of motion, Hamiltonian, whatever. All right. So uh, if you want to know how do we currently describe the world, you shouldn't ask what does quantum mechanics say. You should ask what is in the standard model, what is the general relativity, what are the ingredients of the worlds of the world. So if I do, uh, let's take the simplest case. If I do the quantum mechanic of a particle, okay, it's a Schrodinger equation of a single particle. Uh, how do I think the system? Well, it's a particle. <laughs> it's just this particle, and how do I visualize the system? Exactly the, the classical way I visualize a particle. There's a particle moving there. And if I do the electromagnetic field, I think of the electromagnetic field or, or, or many photons. And if I do the standard model, I think of all the complexity of the field of the standard model, of the particle standard model. Now, the point is that, let's say on the, part, on the particle, I visualize the particle, okay? But I have to remember that this entity, this system, the particle, has a position here uh, with respect to me in the moment is interacting with me. I should not think that it always have a position. The position is the way the particle interact with me. So if I interact with a particle and there's a wall with two, uh, two holes and I interact again with a particle the other side of the wall, I should not think that the particle always had a position and therefore had to choose one hole or the other. Particle might pass through the two holes because it doesn't have a position while it's not interacting with me. And when it's interacting with me, it has a position. So that's it. That's a particle that I see. But in that particular moment, not necessarily with respect to you has a position, because with respect to you, it's possible that me and the particle neither have a position. Okay? In your description, we're both in a quantum superposition of different branches of the universe, whatever. Okay, so we're not supposed to think in terms of is, or at least it's not useful, think in terms of relations. But also at the same time, I remember in your book, you said nature is what it is. So how am I supposed to mix it? It is, nature is what it is. But then let's not think in terms of is. Am I just taking that a bit too literally? Well, it is, <laughs> do I say nature is what it is? Nature is what it is in the sense that um, I, I, I think we often make a mistake of uh, confusing relationality with subjectivity. Um, 
uh, let me make a, a simple example in special relativity or, or in Galilean relativity. We always say the, the velocity with respect to one observer. Okay. Um, if I am on the train, uh, the velocity of something, somebody sitting next to me is zero with respect to the observer me. But if you're outside the train, the velocity with respect to you, which another observer is different. Now, we use observer there, but of course, this has nothing to do with the fact that we're human beings, we're thinking, right? You could say the velocity with respect to a lamp or the velocity with respect to a table, okay? So a table can be an observer from this perspective. So what we're only saying that velocity is, is a relative concept, is a relational concept. It's not a property of an object. It's a property of two objects. There's no velocity of one object. There's only velocity of one object with respect to the other one. So um, in quantum mechanics, I think it's similar. The, the 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 properties are relational, not with respect to an observer, not with respect to a mind. Not, we don't need mind. We don't need to talk about minds here. We're going to talk about Bernardo uh, Castro soon. So don't worry, we'll exactly. get to mind. We don't we'll we don't to want mind. to go to that. Or we we can get there <laughs> there. But I uh, I don't think at all that quantum mechanics take us in that direction. Uh, it tells us that things are rel relational, uh, not that things are relative to mind. Um, why this is relevant to, to your question? Because uh, I, at the light of that, I want to think that I, Carlo, uh, or you, Kurt, we're just pieces of nature. We're like tables, chairs from this perspective. Of course, very complicated. We do a lot of stuff that tables and chairs don't do. Uh, but as far as physical properties are concerned, uh, we're just physical things. So uh, we want to know how nature works in general on the basis of our experience, of course, our limited experience. That's the picture we have about nature. And we want to know how 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 work how nature works with, with its interactions, with its uh, relative variables. And that's in the sense that that's that that's a universe with its uh relational aspects. So for velocity we got used to it. Nothing has a velocity by itself. Velocity is just a relational thing. Since I'm an object, I see velocity with respect to me. Fine. I see that something is not moving with respect to me, something else is... Uh, but I don't recognize this as a special point of view. Uh, with respect to, to Jupiter, velocity of everything is different. Okay? So it's a story about nature as it is, not about our own picture of nature. And as always, you know, we learn that we're not special. We, we make a larger picture of reality. We we, we think it works. Um, and that's nature out there. Okay, let me see if I can summarize. So like you said, we take a pen or a cup and ordinarily we can assign its position and its momentum. And you're saying, well, mo obviously momentum is relative. Even position is relative because that's more immediate. It's two meters away from me, but it's not. It's probably thousands of meters away from you, tens of thousands and so on. Okay, now what if there are other aspects of this cup that we think are inherent in the cup? So mass, the amount of liquid in it, the reflective properties and so on. What if those are also relational and for any conceivable property? It's not saying there is nothing, there is no thing behind the cup. It's saying that whatever we think of as this thing behind the cup is not what we I don't know if we can even have a model of it because our models are so property laden, but whatever it is, it's not what we precisely think. You have a book. Reality is not what it seems. So reality of this cup is not what it seems. Is that correct? Yeah, it's correct. It's exactly so. And exactly. In fact, one way of seeing is that uh, 
și quantum mechanics idea of uh, uh, understanding quantum mechanics a discovery that uh, we always knew that there are many relational properties out there, <laughs> like velocity is relational. Um, but it's a realization that quantum mechanics tell us that all properties are relational. You know, firstly, I find you to be extremely philosophical and much more so than much more so than the average, much, much more so than the average physics professor. I'm curious, do you see that? And, and well, do you see there? Firstly, is that true? Do you feel that's true? Uh, I'm happy you asked this question. And uh, uh, let me answer in this way. Depend on what you mean the average uh, physical professor. If you mean uh, today's physical professors, the answer is definitely yes. I'm not ah. unique. There are many other like me. I mean, I, I could name many that are as philosophical as me or even more philosophical than me. But the very, very large majority of contemporary um physics professors are far less philosophical. However, if you look at the past, um, look, uh, I don't know, 100 years ago, in the, in the 20s or 30s of, uh, of, the, of the 20th century, um, and if you look, just look at the great scientists at the time, uh, Schrodinger, Heisenberg, uh, Einstein, Bohr, De Broglie, they were far more philosophical than me. They were inspired by philosophy, reading philosophy, talking philosophy, discussing philosophy. Uh, and that includes Newton, includes Boltzmann, includes Maxwell, includes Faraday. So um, I think that the major advances in science, in physics, in the past, but also I mean, in other sciences, uh, in biology, Darwin was enormously philosophical. He was reading philosophers, he was strongly influenced by philosophers. Um, so I think that, uh, especially in foundational questions, of course, if you, the more you go to, uh, to apply mm. to, to specific, uh, system, yeah. the less you need, I mean, you do need a philosophical mind also for some, some questions in, in, in more, more, less foundational questions, but, but when you're close to foundational questions, uh, uh, science in the past, uh, in the past, I mean, until the sixties, no, the deep past, uh, has been very close uh, to, uh, uh, to philosophy, philosophy questions, uh, influenced by, uh, by philosophy and, and talking philosophical terms. Um, I mean, just read Einstein. Einstein, uh, uh, Einstein, who is a champion of theoretical physicists for, for everybody, I would say, uh, he, he has read the three main books by Kant before getting, being 16. He was very, he read Hume, he read uh, uh, Schopenhauer, uh, the philosophical writing of Poincaré, Mach uh, as a philosopher. Uh, and uh, it's obvious once you go into what he did, that everything he did uh, uh, was very much affected by this philosophical thinking. So I think uh, you're right. I am more... I belong to the, to those scientists who are more philosophical than, than many others. I think it is a um, a limitation of a part of the research today uh, to be very technical, very mathematical, very uh, shut up and calculating. Uh, yeah, or or just 
to mathematical modeling. I, I think that if you invent a sufficiently complicated uh, mathematics, uh, uh, you this and this and this and this, and it's very hard mathematics and blah, 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 and that's you're getting close to reality. Mm. Maybe not. You know, some people say don't mistake the map for the territory. Is that what you mean, yeah. or is it some, some, not it's precisely? It's worse than that, because I think that a lot of uh, uh, current work in theoretical physics is a map without a territory. Ah, okay. Oh, without a territory. All right, right. Now, Max Tegmark, and I haven't seen his lectures on this, but I'm sure he would object because he has the mathematical universe as his philosophical framework. Oh, uh, not at all. I mean, I think Max Tegmark, uh, who is a thinker I deeply respect, is one of the most philosophical, even more philosophical than me. I mean, he's a He's a philosopher compared to me. I mean, he, he's a guy who wrote a book claiming that uh, every um, every possible coherent mathematically described universe is as real as the our actual one. Um, that's deep philosophy. It has nothing to do with direct physics in a sense, right? It's a, it's, it's wonderful speculations. M Max. Uh, I mean, Max has a, a technical work as an astrophysicist, but has a, a, a range of wide, uh, uh, very philosophical speculations. I think we need more people like Max and less people who uh, who just do mathematics without really asking what is reality I'm actually describing here. Do you see that there's not only a lack of philosophical ideation, but perhaps a resistance to it? Do you see an aversion to it? Or do you just see it as they lack it? There's an absence of it. Oh, when I say uh, they, both. I mean, let's say the average mathematician or physical or physicist. Both, both, both. Let's not forget that uh, Steven Weinberg, who is a great scientist, of course, with major, major res results, uh, uh, wrote a book. And one of the chapter of the book, the title is Against Philosophy. And uh, and uh, uh, Stephen Hawking, who is a, is a very good physicist, of course, and he did uh, he had uh, important results, not as good as one of Weinberg, but totally very very important. Uh, it, it's on the record to say many times philosophy is is dead, um, because now we have science that solve all the problems. Uh, I wish it was true, but it's wrong because it doesn't solve all the problems. <laughs> it has a lot of problems by itself, um, and 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 so. Uh, Philosophy is not dead. Philosophy is in constantly interacting with... Uh, um, the reason is that science is not about, uh, you know, you make measurement and then you write an equation and then you check your equation with the measurement. If it is wrong, you throw it away, you try another one. That's not the way science works. The science is a, a, a constant um, changing of the conceptual structure you use for describing the world. You rearrange things, right? You call this together, you call this separate, you think differently, use different notions, different concepts. Uh, you know, Copernicus, instead of thinking the earth, the sky, right, there's a mountain, the stones, uh, in the sky, the sun, the moon, the planets, the stars, he just changed everything. He said, no, 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 that's not the right distinction. There's, there's the sun and the planets and the satellites, and the planet is the Earth, the Moon, so it's a completely different rearrangement of uh, how to organize the world. This is, this, to, to be able, to be capable of this uh, conceptual rearrangements um, 
you have to think in, in, in what you called philosophical uh, thinking. That's the kind of thing that Einstein did, Heisenberg did, Faraday did, Boltzmann did. And that's not what is done by uh, a lot of theoretical physics who just think that the only thing you have to do, you know, is to write another Lagrangian or to write another, you know, map between a Hilbert space and another Hilbert space or a new set of uh, 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 of scattering relations. Uh, yeah. and, and that's and sufficient. Is that because they want to play it safe in a sense? Because when you're just theorizing mathematically, it's easy to check where you're right and wrong. Whereas if you're philosophizing, firstly, you can delve into pseudoscience and not be aware that you are. And it's much easier to wildly speculate and be incorrect. Is that what's behind it? Like, what is behind the aversion that you see? I think it's cultural. I think it's cultural. I mean, uh, many of my colleagues were raised uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, in a moment in which it became very fashionable uh, to be anti-philosophical. Um, this is after the war. Uh, the center of science shifted the part toward the United States from Europe, where it was before. Uh, a little bit, it's a success of the incredible success of the physics of the of the 30s, right? The 20s, 30s, uh, 10th, I mean, the, the first half of the century. I mean, the discovery of special relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics, quantum field theory was spectacular, uh, so good that then somehow it made sense to say, well, stop thinking, let's use it, <laughs> right? I mean, just, uh, we have all these tools that our forefathers have uh, discovered. I mean, that's good, let's use it. And on the basis, think what has happened. On the basis of uh, quantum mechanics, uh, boom, you get, you know, uh, uh, nuclear physics, particle physics, con fundamental condensed matter, uh, 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 lasers, uh, all sorts of marvels, uh, just using the equations with the Dow by Heisenberg and company. And on the basis of special relativity, it took a little bit longer, so the end of the century, but suddenly, you know, you do relativistic astrophysics, cosmology, black hole, boom, gravitational waves, fantastic. Just on, on the conceptual ground, uh, uh, built in the 20s and 30s. So the, the, the beginning of the century, the physicists were so good <laughs> that then... Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. 
Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. People didn't have to think for various decades. Just just apply, 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 apply. But then you need to stop thinking for a while. You get used not thinking. And you get used to the idea that it's just mathematical complications. So if you're sufficiently mathematically skilled, uh, then you will do great physics. And there are people who are spectacularly mathematically skilled and uh, drew all the others like them, like Ed Witten. Ed Witten is a, is a, is a great mathematician. In, if, if there's in an alien, way. it's him. Yeah, but then he drew an entire community in doing not physics. Because if you think for a moment, Ed Witten has not got any real physics result, right? He has proven the positive energy theorem generativity, which had been proved before. He found a better proof of the positive energy. It's a mathematical game. And then he has, you know, speculated about string theory and uh, and, uh, and and constructed uh, uh, games over games that haven't produced any physics so far. Here's a fun question. I'm curious if you've thought much about it. So it's a def- it's almost a question of definitions. What is the universe? So one answer is the universe is everything that there is. So there cannot be an outside to the universe by definition. By the way, when I'm talking about definitions, it seems like that's there's no point in talking about def- definitions themselves are not profound because they're tautologies. However, when I was speaking to Jor Barnetton, I'm not sure if you know him, he was saying, Kurt, you want me to talk about proofs and theorems? What may be more important are definitions and techniques. So let's not let's not demean definitions. So firstly, what is the definition of the what is the definition of the universe? And then where do the laws stand? So are the laws a part of the universe? Um there are different definitions of the of the universe which are useful. Um and uh uh, it, it's good not to confuse them because we we can use both of them. Um, in cosmology, which is a great discipline, which have made very important uh, uh, had obtained great results in in, in the last decades. Uh, the universe is not the totality of things. The universe is the uh, the description of what we see around us as the largest scale that we look at it. So the, that universe is a very small thing. <laughs> it's, Lowercase u. It's just not looking at the details. It's what you see if you don't look at the details. But of course, the details is, you and I are the details in that. Right, in that, sure. In that picture. Uh, that's very useful. Uh, it's a very strict definition of universe. And uh, you describe it, you know, with a scale factor that grows and the galaxy density and this kind of things and dark matter and, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, that has turned out to be very, very useful because, in fact, we have learned a credible story of what has happened for 14 billion years in the past. And it's a very credible story. I mean, it's very convincing. Once you study it, you say, yeah, good, we have evidence for that. But that's not the universe in the sense that you were asking, right? You were, you were referring to a different de- definition of universe, uh, which is all, all there is, so to say, the totality. Yeah, a tantamount to reality. Yeah, it's a, the, 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 
the, the totality of the real things, the, the totality of, of, of realities. Uh, I agree that definitions are um, not are, are important, are crucial. Yeah, they're not trivial. They're not trivial. I think in some sense they are, but they give ex extreme insight. Yeah, they're a great insight. I mean, think of the example of a, of a. I talk about Copernicus, right? If you start by a definition, you know, of uh, Earth and 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 the celestial bodies, you you you're done. You killed Copernicus, right? You have to redefine things. You have to define planets versus stars versus satellite, and then you go ahead. That's Without this definition, you're lost. And then it is a very uh, unintuitive definition, planet. Well, I mean, why should I put in the same category the Earth, which I see around me, you know, with the trees, the mountain, the sky, the birds, and this little dot that move out there, which is Venus. These are completely different things. Right. No, they're not different things. That's the point. You can define them together. Bingo. You understand how the solar system works. So definitions are crucial. Now, the totality of thing, it's a delicate definition because of relational quantum mechanics. <laughs> ah. So, uh, you see, if you buy relational quantum mechanics, you cannot ascribe properties to the totality of things because all properties are really relative to something else. So there is no... Uh, there is no properties. The universe has no property. In fact, the universe is 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 not a system because a system is is something which can interact with another system to reveal its properties, to to manifest its properties. So you, if you buy relational quantum mechanics, you only have a description of the universe from the inside, so to say. The description of the universe as a whole, you cannot have it. So. Uh, if you take seriously relational quantum mechanics, and if you take seriously uh, what several philosophers today are telling us, uh, I, I think, for instance, Janan Ismail is one of them, that careful, because every time we look at the universe, we're looking at the universe from the inside, as, as being part of the universe, not from the outside. And we often get confused because we, we, we take it out of the picture. We think that we can see the totality of things from the outside and 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 that's wrong and a lot of confusion about uh, i don't know free will um or uh, um or uh, what is knowledge it's always thinking that we're outside the universe and that's the universe with its stuff and we are out there looking at that that's it's not true it's factually not true uh so the universe in the sense of cosmology is fine it's perfectly good thing. But the universe in the sense of the totality of thing, uh, it's, a, it's a notion one should be very careful with, in my opinion. For instance, one should not ascribe properties of the universe, because how do, how do you, what, what do you mean? This is one reason I don't believe there's a wave function of the universe. It doesn't make any sense. There are many in-principle problems with conceiving of the universe. Well, in-principle problems with science apply to the universe as a whole, because in science we're constantly looking at interacting parts within. And so then, firstly, how are you supposed to perform an experiment twice on the universe as a whole? The universe is the entirety. Okay, exactly. you mind expanding exactly upon so. that. So what are the problems of the... What else are the problems? The in-principle problems, not just pragmatically we can't interact with all of the universe. The in-principle problems with conducting 
science or even thought experiments about the universe as a whole? Um, yes, uh, I can. But uh, uh, before doing that, let me reiterate uh, uh, the distinction between two different meanings of, of universe. I mean, when the yes, cosmologists yes. talk about the universe, uh, that's solid science. That's Observable universe is what is the Observable other name? Observable universe. Okay. Uh, the, the the universe as a cosmologist, uh, it's uh, what is it? It's the the large scale properties of what we see around us. So uh, we look at, the, at that universe from the outside, right? We have a telescope, and with the telescope we count galaxies. So the telescope and us is the observer. The the, the galaxies counted uh, is the is the system we're observing. So it's fine. It's it's perfectly fine. We we can see this galaxy. We see how much they're moving apart from us. We can trace back how compressed they were in the before. We have a system. We can model it, um, and we're observing these degrees of freedom uh, from from the outside, in the sense that we are not part of those degrees of freedom. We're, we we are spatially inside, but we're observing it from not being one of them. It's like if you were, I'm in this room and I study the air of this room. I can be inside the room, but I'm not the air. Okay. Uh, so, so that's fine. On the other hand, uh, the idea of describing the totality of thing, of ascribing a wave function, for instance, to the totality of thing, which is common, uh, I, I don't think is a good idea because... Uh, uh, let me be more specific. The wave function of an object, the wave function of this pen, uh, it's a way of computing where this pen is going to show up with respect to me next. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. So when when I'm in a laboratory and, 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 and do some quantum measurement uh, and, uh, and I use the wave function, the quantum state for uh, predicting what I'm going to see, uh, I, I'm deducing this wave function from what I saw. Okay, I've seen this pen, the spin of this particular one way goes through some apparatus, and I have the probability of the spin being this way or that way after the pen goes up. That's a typical, yeah. uh, super simplified calculation. And to do this calculation, I use the quantum wave function of this, uh, of this, uh, uh, of this pen. But what is this quantum wave function? is what I know about the pen and is a, a, a description of, of what should I expect of the pen. So it's something that regards the pen and me. It's a, it's a relative state. And the person who first has understood that when you use quantum states in quantum mechanics, we always talk about relative state, is Everett uh, in uh, several decades ago. Uh, Everett has understood that states are relative states. So the quantum state of an object is always relative to another object. Okay, this is a, a state is a relational thing. And once you understand that, clearly, the totality of thing does not does not have a quantum state, because uh, unless you believe there is God and God think do quantum experiments on on the. But then God is not part of the universe. You, you have a then. The universe and God together don't have a quantum state, right? So um, the the 
the wave function of everything, of the universe in the sense of everything, um, I think is not something that should uh, uh, enter in, is not a useful notion in physics. The, the wave functions are relational notions um, that connect a system with another system considered observer. Okay, so three thoughts occur to me. I'm going to say them and then just so that I don't forget them and then we can tackle them one by one. Okay, so number one, you mentioned Everett, and I believe Everett was a proponent of many worlds. I'm in, I'm not sure about that. So, okay, you nodding your head. So if that's the case, well, if he in many ways realized this relative notion of quantum mechanics, the relational notion, so why did he move to many worlds? So that's one. I'm going to say the other so I don't forget them. Number two, hmm, when we're speaking, even right now, just with English language, it seems incredibly misleading because as soon as i say i look right there i use the word i and you also mentioned as many philosophers come to similar conclusions well what is this i what is behind so as soon as you start to analyze any word as soon as i say cup well what is the cup okay you we realize that every everyday language is beguiling so it can't actually describe reality now i'm wondering hmm is there something similar with math do you believe that math is somehow exempt from this that math is actually can't math actually can describe reality so that's my number two don't worry i've got all these in my head and the number three was i didn't hear an answer to whether or not the laws themselves like the rules of the game are part of the game or in other words if when one thinks of reality as a whole is one also supposed to think of the laws that reality operate by as being a part of reality so let's get to number one why did everett come to alternate conclusions. Yes. Um, so the, the first thing you asked is, uh, um, um, you said Everett is, is, is considered uh, sort of the beginning of a many world interpretation. That's correct. No, that's correct. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, many people who like the many world interpretation call all, calls this interpretation also the Everett interpretation. Right. I think that's where they I got call, that Call themselves Everettian. Um, Everett wrote a, a, a fantastic paper, plus other, uh, other things, in which there are a number of ideas. Um, we also have the, um, the thesis that Everett wrote. Then he left physics. Um, so one question might be what he himself actually thought about quantum mechanics, uh, but that's not a very interesting question. I mean, the, 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 what is interesting is not what actually people thought at some time. What is interesting, what can we do with, the, with their ideas and their text? And Everett has introduced this notion of uh, uh, relational states, which I think is it, it, spectacularly good. And one way of developing that idea is relational quantum mechanics namely thinking that properties are all, all relational. Another way of developing that idea is the many-world interpretation. So if you want, from Everett, you, you can branch off to two, two possible uh, directions of thinking about quantum theory. The many-world interpretation, it goes the opposite direction than the relational quantum mechanics, even if it has this common idea that properties are relatively... They, Many more people will say to to system and to branches. Um, the the many world idea is 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 contrary is to take the wave function of the universe seriously, and think that this is all there is. This wave function of the universe, this overall uh, super quantum state in which we are sitting, 
and uh, um, and all the rest has to be sort of extracted from uh, uh, derived from 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 this wave function of the universe, this wave function of everything, and that's a real stuff. That's sort of the many world interpretation. Um, it's very interesting. I don't like it very much. I think, that, as, as, as I said at the beginning, each interpretation has a cost, and I don't think it's a cost that is bringing us ahead. Because, uh, you know, if, if you think, uh, if, you, if you take it seriously, um, the universe is sort of constantly splitting in multiple branches of this big wave function, where you and I are copied millions and millions of times. Uh, uh, so you would think that there is the, the other, the other, the other copies of non-realized. Non um, yeah, you might think that way, but uh, it's, it's nothing wrong. But I don't think it's useful. Okay, so then number two was about the limitations of language, and then do you see any similar limitations to the language of mathematics to the degree you can call it a language, as describing the universe? I don't think mathematics uh, alone is sufficient. Um, uh, I mean, I, I listen and I read Max Tegmark, but nevertheless, I think that between mathematics and reality, there is a gap. Um, I think mathematics is not out there. Mathematics is, is, is a game we play, fantastic game we play, uh, super useful, that we extract from from reality uh, but I think that uh, um, if I use case, if I think case by case, the mathematics that describe a pendulum, okay, which we learn at school when we study, you know, the the differential equation of the pendulum, the solution, the sine or cosine, it's beautiful mathematics, but it's not a pendulum, okay. Now you can say, okay, because something is missing. In a real pendulum, there's also this, also this, also this. But I think it 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 stays like that. I mean, you refine your model, your mathematical model, but there's a jump between, uh, there's always a jump between mathematics and reality. And when you, um, uh, when you do, you get to complicated theories, like current physical theories, standard model, general relativity, it's even stronger. I mean, these equations need to be interpreted, need to be connected to what we see. And this connection, it's part of the story. And it's even the most interesting part of the story, so to say. It's not sufficient to have equations like that. I mean, what does it mean? You have a question, you have all space of solutions. Now, Max Tegman could say, okay, that's reality. That's all the, all the reason we just happen to be into one. Um, but which one? That's a... That's, uh, that's a connection to reality. So this means that also mathematics has the same problem that you are describing. I mean, our everyday language might be inappropriate to describe the world. We have to refine it. We have to invent a new, new Earth, planet, <laughs> which include the Earth. Uh, but the same is true with mathematics. I mean, the fact of writing a big mathematical equations is completely insufficient unless we uh, reinterpret its, its ingredients and we connect it to the world and to our experience. So the, the undeterminacy of language that you were referring to, we have to struggle with 
uh, with or without mathematics equally. And we have to live with it. We, we should not uh, think that we can, you know, get to the bottom of the story and have a perfectly uh, logical, perfect language description of reality and everything is clarified. We are not there, completely not there, by, 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 by zillions of miles. We are in a big mess in which we see a complicated world. We understand part of it. We understand some regularities of it. And we call this our physics. Um, and this, this takes me to the... The third question about the laws. Yeah, to the third question about the laws, uh, which you asked before. Um, I think that what laws are, as far as we know, are just uh, regularities. So we... We see phenomena, we, we think that this is the way uh, uh, nature works. So phenomena are not just with respect to us, the phenomena with respect to, to, to Saturn. When Saturn, when something hits Saturn, this Saturn, it's, it's hit by, by a meteorite. Like I'm hit by your voice. Uh, the world, it's, 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 this is a fact, it's a mixture of two things of uh, uh, contingent things that we have no idea how to predict and predictable things. It's always been like that, right? I don't know who will ring my phone next, but I know that tomorrow the sun will rise. Uh, and I know exactly what time it will rise, okay? So there's a part of the world which is incredibly easy to predict. I mean, if I let this thing fall, I know it will go down and not up. I can predict it, I can bet of it, and I'm going to win the bet. So there's a huge part of the world which is predictable, and there's a huge part of the world which is unpredictable. So we organize that in our science, and physics in particular, and we call the predictable story the laws that we find out. Okay, this is what it is. I mean, we have found some regularity, very, very good, very strong regularity, we call the laws. And we have unpredictable part, which we call initial conditions or... Uh, you know, undetermination in quantum mechanics, we give other names, um, to the fact that uh, definitely the laws are not sufficient to describe the world, right? Obviously, because a single law has many solutions. We don't know which one describes the world. As an aside, you hear people say, well, Copernicus realized that the Earth revolves around the sun. Isn't one of the points of general relativity to say that you can actually view it both ways? You can just change the coordinates? According to system, yeah. technically. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yes, you're right. You're right. In fact, uh, um, in fact, uh, if you ask, let me put it this way, because I think it's interesting. If you ask the the question, um, is, is is the Earth going around the Sun or the Sun going around the Earth? Uh, uh, let me put a simpler question: Is the Earth the center of the universe? Mm -hmm. Is that a scientific question? Yes, of course, it's a scientific question, right? In fact, jumping out from this idea that the Earth is center universe is what allowed us to do Newtonian physics, Kepler, and everything. I mean, we understood so much. But let's ask, let's think about this question. Can it be measured whether the Earth is a central universe or not? No, right? There's no way to measure it. We have no, no way of thinking what is the center of the universe. We, it's not something which is uh, directly measurable. 
And I think this is interesting because it shows that science is not just about measurable things. Science, as I said before, is about organizing your thinking in some way. So if you organize your thinking as the Earth and not moving, everything going around it in some way, you're just messing up your, your understanding. You're just, it's too complicated. You're not getting out of it. But if you start to reorganize things first, it's, 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 it's the sun, and then say, oh, no, no, actually, it's not the sun. The sun is also moving. And then you better again. Um, there's no center in the universe. There's no preferred reference frame. Uh, some have properties, some have the other properties. You reorganize your thinking in a better and better ways. And of course, the previous one looked a little bit naive, always. Okay? It's not true that the sun is the center and the earth going around. It's a more complicated story, like the one you said. It's more correct. Um, so, science is not about true or false. It's not just about true or false clear statement. It's about the best way we've found so far for thinking about the universe. The one that allows us to understand things, to predict things, to write laws more easily. I think me and you think quite alike, and I heard a hint of it when you said that there are different quantum mechanical interpretations, and in some sense they're each right. Now, that phrase, they're each right. Hmm. That's, see, I'm not driven they're by each... promoting peace, even though it seems like I'm ironic. It's just that... <laughs> Look, I, I didn't say they're each right. I, say, I said they're each coherent and possible. They are not wrong. Let me explain. So before Copernicus, sun, Earth center. Copernicus, no, sun is centered. Einstein, hey, you're both right in some way. Now, I'm curious, as I investigate more philosophy, even religion, just like there was this line in your book about up and down, and it seems to make no sense, it seems contradictory until you view it from another point of view, and you see, oh, well, what's up to Australians is down to us Canadians and so on. Okay. Well, I'm also, I also see, or also wonder how much of religion and, well, philosophy in general, but let's just take religion. It's, it seems like the major religions contradict with one another, but are they true contradictions when viewed from another perspective? Is there another one in which you can say, actually, that's right in some way, that's right in some other way, and that's right. Now, okay, I've just outlined, in a sense, my outlook, my personality. Do you view problems like that, or... Do you see what I said as having any truth, or is there something that I should be aware of as a limitation in that thinking? Well, it's it's uh, you're bringing different things together. Um, first of all, uh, let me separate my answer in two parts. First of all, uh, religion is a very complicated phenomenon, a very 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 wide phenomenon. Uh, you mentioned the big religion, religions. The big religions, uh, first of all, they're different from one another. They're different properties. Uh, second, they are institutions. They are people. They are history. They are center of powers sometimes. They are systems of beliefs. They make statements. They are moral systems. Uh, uh, they are ways for people for thinking the world. Uh, they are ways for people to get in together. You know, you go to the church and you find friends. So, um, it's, it makes no sense to say uh, it's certain religion right or wrong. I mean, it's like saying, is the United States right or wrong? Well, it's, in my opinion, it's wrong in some things, <laughs> right, in some other things. Sure. Um, I disagree with some of its politics. I like some of its, uh, of its ideology or whatever. So, um, so uh, 
if you isolate within religion a certain uh, moral aspect, uh, def definitely you, 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 I am not religious at all. I'm an atheist. I feel perfectly sympathetic. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to uh, fight together with some religious people for the peace in the world. I don't know. Um, if you isolate some other aspects, uh, like the belief that there was a creator, which is a person, I just find it wrong. I, I think it's wrong. So uh, it's a very complicated story. And I, 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 I see a lot of bad in religions. I also see a lot of good in religions. I don't want to enter in which one I think is strong. Um, now let me let me zoom into your your point uh, because you said, well, does this mean that somehow there's always some something right? I no, wouldn't say always. Say that, yeah. Okay. Continue. I, I would say the other the other way around. There's always something wrong. <laughs> it's more interesting. Namely, uh, I think that we we humans live in a dialogue. And the good of the dialogue is that we change our mind because of what we hear from the other guy, right? That's how culture has developed. That's how science has developed. And uh, each time, so we're always, the best thinking, it's always in search of what is wrong, not what is right, okay? What is wrong in my thinking or what is wrong in your thinking? Because that's what allows us to go ahead, right? Is the... The great uh, step of Copernicus has not been, you know, to 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 have the idea that the, the Earth goes around. It has been to recognize that being attached to the idea that the enter the center is wrong. So has found something wrong in the uh, in the basis of uh, um, of the way astronomers thought for for centuries, and and you know a couple of generations later, Kepler uh, did the same game. He discovered that for two millennia, people tried to make sense of what we see in the sky in terms of circles, and he said, "This is not circles; they're ellipses." Okay, so after two millennia of circles, he said, "Well, forget circles." So what is interesting? What we are wrong? Okay, and I think there are a lot of wrong ideas in, in instead of all inside a lot of beautiful uh, moral, social, human constructions and behaviors, there are just wrong ideas in many religions. Um, it has to be so because they are so contradictory of one another. Of course, there are some wrong ideas I and mean, they cannot be all right. Uh, so the fact that we can learn from one another and uh, we can often um, uh, take a larger point of view on does not change the fact that uh, there is a precise sense in which uh, the pre-Copernicus system, the Ptolemaic system, is just wrong, factually wrong, and Copernicus system is wrong, and Ke Kepler is, is wrong because uh, planets don't go along ellipses, they move more complicated, and Newton theory is wrong, because if you take Newton theory and you use Newton theory to compute the motion of Mercury, you just get it wrong. Okay, you miss a little correction, which comes correct with general relativity. So, um, in a sense, uh, I'm, I'm not. I think there is to learn from from different things. I think it's good to give, uh, keep an open mind, and to listen to different perspective. Uh, 
But the interesting of the dialogue is precisely when we can step out from mistakes in one, in one, in one situation or the other. See, for me, when it comes to religion in particular, I would say up until just a couple of years ago, I was such an adamant atheist. And I wouldn't say that I'm a theist now at all. I'm, I just wouldn't classify myself as either being pro or against. I'd say I'm undecided. The reason why I don't focus on the wrong is because to people like me and, and you scientifically minded people, it's fairly obvious the wrong. It's just so blatant. I find it much more interesting and difficult to see well, what is compatible and what is correct from another point of view. Also, that definitely knowing where one is wrong, even the nuances of incorrectness, adds to certain correctness, like gives you different points of view. So that's, I understand that. You know, speaking of what's wrong, I'm curious. Let's imagine if all properties are relative. Okay, now, is the law that all properties are relative a property? Can you be relational with respect to the principle of relation? What does that even mean? Does that lie outside? Do you understand what I'm saying? I know this is extremely ill-defined, but I'm always interested in what happens when a principle is applied to itself. So even, let's say, Bayesian reasoning. If you ask someone who says, I'm a Bayesian reasoner, okay, so do you believe anything with 100% certainty? They may say no, like I'm a scientist, so I doubt. Okay, do you doubt the principle of Bayesian reasoning even one, even a little, even a tiny? Because as soon as you open a sliver there, then what happens when you, well, you get what I'm saying. Yes, of course, I get very well what you're saying. Um, I think that one of the interesting trends in uh, contemporary philosophy uh, it's uh, what might be called anti-foundationalism. Uh, it's not a new idea. There was anti-foundationalism in uh, thinking in, in Western and also in Eastern philosophy. Um, and this is the idea that... What does that mean? Yeah, it's the idea that you, uh, you don't need to hold... Uh, to um, uh, not only to absolute certainty, but to any uh, to to anything definitive, uh, is is sort of is is a shift is idea of shifting interest from what we can say for sure, what can we say for final, to uh, what we can say um, uh, interesting and 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 and, and valuable. Um, in fact, this is look, uh, Kurt. Your your um, your series is about the theory of everything. I don't think we need a theory of everything. I I think we need good theories. The more coherent possible, the more uh, useful possible, more advanced possible. Like pragmatic. Uh, as soon as someone says well, use, I think of pragmatism. Like it's all goal based. Whether it's adaptive, uh, well, maybe it's pragmatic. I don't know. It's a uh, pragmatism. Uh, philosophical current has. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. 
Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. As much more. Um, I, I think that... What I like in science and in philosophy, it's the part of them that have this um, uh, this attitude, which is, look, we can learn. It's, it's historically we know we can learn. We can learn more and more and more. But it's not useful. It, it's useful to ask, uh, as best as we know today, what is the best organization we have of our of 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 the world? And it's true that there is a remarkable coherence in our culture and our understanding of the world. But asking what is the final uh, ingredient of the world, what is the final rules of thinking, what is the basic substance of everything, it's just, just a bad, it's a useless question. That's my take. So can we live with uncertainty? Yes. Do we have to take something as, uh, can we doubt our also our doubt? Sure, we can. It might be useful. Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson Razor works with the standard dual-edge blades that give you that old-school shave with the benefits of this new-school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. I will read from your book to give people an overview. And by the way, right previous to this question, I just wrote down a wonderfully philosophical set of sentences from you, which was about... Bryce and John, when 
you met them and then you felt the pain of their absence you then wrote but it isn't the absence that causes sorrow it is affection and love without affection without love such absences would cause us no pain for this reason even the pain caused by absence is in the end something good and beautiful because it feeds on that which gives meaning to life if those of you who are watching or listening I've recommended only one book consistently, and that's Ian McGilchrist's Master and His Emissary. And I'm going to start to add a second one, and that's Order of Time. It's filled with, firstly, if you want to know about the nature of time and how time has been thought of and redefined, or not, well, recontextualized is a better way of thinking about it. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful book, and it's quite short. So the opposite is Ian McGilchrist, which is, I think, a tome. And then yours is a compendium. It's quite digestible okay let's get to thermal time so firstly i want to <laughs> tell you how beautiful thank those that set of lines were thank you very much good uh, thank you for saying that about uh, the order of time is it's definitely the book which is uh, uh, that i've written which is more close to my to my heart because uh, it's a book and and you know the quotation you you mentioned uh, uh shows it um it's a book in which i, I talk about science it's mostly about science, uh, and it's about the science of time. And uh, and I I sort of try to summarize everything we know from science about time, and also the things we don't know uh, uh, about time from 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 science. So I, it's a big part in which I just explain, as best as I understand, uh, what we've learned about time from special relativity, from statistical mechanics, from Boltzmann, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, from quantum gravity. Um, and, and then also the open questions, uh, what we think, the speculations. But it's also a book. When I wrote it, time touches us, right? Time, we are, time is not a neutral thing for us because it's what makes us living, but also what we lose. Time is losing. So time is something that touches deep us inside. So it's, it's, it's a book that while writing it, I had constantly this uh, emotional aspect about time in mind. So there's a lot of poetry and the verses from Horace, which is an ancient Latin philosopher, which I love, which talks about time, the, the time that passes, the passage of time. And there's a last chapter in which I talk about death, which is the ultimate confrontation with time that we have in our, in our, uh, in our life. So it's a, it's a book which is science, but also uh, our emotional relation with time as you, um, uh, I see the quotation you mentioned about uh, about pain and sorrow of losing people. All right, so sorry for this. Uh, That's right. In chapter <laughs> ten, there was, I think in chapter ten it's called the mandolin. I don't recall the words that came prior to it, but it's about the Eastern mystic from the one hundred years, one hundred first century, sorry, second century Nagarjuna. Is that correct? Yeah, Nagarjuna. There's a chapter. Well, no, there is a chapter in Nagarjuna in Helgoland, my book on quantum mechanics. Okay, so what was being referred to in Mandolin when oh, this yeah, person yeah, said yeah, that yeah, there is sure. no I? Oh yes, 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 yes. That's a famous dialogue in Eastern uh, literature, the beginning of the Buddhist uh, uh, philosophy. It's a spectacular dialogue, uh, the dialogue about the char chariot, right? It's yes. King, yes. Uh, who was he speaking to? Uh, it's a king, a king. Oh, I forgot the name. Sorry, I forgot the name. It's a fair. It's it's a, it's a, it's it's one of the topics you want to dis discuss: is the nature of I, the self. Um, but let's go. Let's keep that for later. <laughs> uh, 
So you asked about thermal time. Yeah, for, okay, for the people who are listening, the links to Carlo Rivelli's book, Order of Time, as well as his latest book are in the description. And well, what was super interesting to me is in 2022, I'll start to delve a bit more into Eastern philosophies. I've had on pretty much zero, although most people's philosophies are influenced by different parts of the world to some degree. So this, it was fun because when I was first asking you for an interview, I used it as an opportunity for me to learn loop quantum gravity because I've always wanted to learn some of that. So I started going through your lectures, but then I was sidetracked in the most positive manner by order of time. I just, I just, I didn't think that you were such a philosophical person. And I thought, boy, oh boy, I don't, well, I don't know of anyone who is a theoretical physicist that is able to be so cognitively flexible in that regard. You mentioned Max Tegmark, but I haven't looked him up much. So I was just, I was thrown by that. And I was, I'm still super excited to be speaking with you. Thank you, Kurt. Um, thanks a lot. Um, so you want to know about thermal time. So can you explain what thermal time is? This is my question. And then I had, a, I had some notes. So the conventional logic for interpreting this relation is time gives you a notion of energy, which gives you a notion of an, a macroscopic state. Now you're saying that this can be reversed. Okay, now that's so using that as a jumping off point. And remember that the audience understands what entropy and so on is. Though if okay. you want to quickly go over, you're more than welcome to. Okay, perfect. So, um, um, the, the, uh, there are a number of open questions uh, in understanding time. I think there are a lot of things we have understood that time doesn't work the way we usually think about. We have understood this with, with special relativity, with general relativity, with statistical mechanics. But then there are some open questions. And uh, uh, among the open questions, it's following. Uh, once we go to a general relativistic description about the world, um, the so description of the world uh, large enough to include the relativistic properties of gravity, then uh, the theory we use uh, does not have a lot of variables, variable things we measure, but none of this uh, is naturally identified as a time variable. That's the point. And I'm not talking for those who are uh, more learned among those who, uh, you guys who listen. I'm not talking about uh, in a given space-time, uh, which one is time. Of course, in a given space-time, uh, there are clocks that measure proper time along each line we know this time. But I'm talking about the evolution of space-time itself. I mean, the Einstein equation that evolved uh, gravity, space-time, matter, everything, in that evolution, uh, this evolution is given as a relative evolution of variables and not evolution in time. Uh, and then case by case, we can identify, say, well, let's call this time right? one, one particular variable. This works. Um, in fact, this is the way the world is at the level of, of, of general relativity and also at the level of a general relativistic quantum field theory for quantum gravity. But then there is something funny, and that's a question. In our experience, it's very clear uh, which variable is time. It's, it's the one that clocks are connected to, okay? The, the time variable is completely different than the other variables, profoundly different. And uh, so 
how is it possible that from a theory in which no specific variable is temporal, then for us, uh, one variable, which is the position of the clock, is definitely completely different than the others because it distinguishes past from the future in such a way. So I worked on that uh, and I wrote some papers, several papers on that, and a, a key paper with a French mathematician, a field medal, Alain Kohn, a spectacular and brilliant and good mathematician, uh, because we got to this idea, both of us, uh, independently, in, in a very different path, and we wrote this paper together. He came to that from pure mathematics. I came to that from thinking about physics. And so the idea is a speculative idea. I'm not sure it's correct. Uh, it's not something people agree upon, but I, I put in the book as a, as, as a speculation. It's something I, I think in some sense should be right. <laughs> um, and it is the following that uh, when we distinguish the time variable from the other, it's because uh, of, of what peculiar of time. What is peculiar of time? That the past is so different from the future, okay? The right, right and left are not different. Up and down are not so different, a little bit different, but we understand that. Uh, past and future are completely different. And uh, but, but the big difference, there the, are the many differences which we can write down, but the big difference is that entropy grows toward the future. Okay, and this is a reason we remember the past and not the future. This is the reason the future feels open. This is a reason uh, uh, if you if you if you if you if you show a film backward, a movie uh -huh. backward, it's obviously backward, and uh -huh. so on and so forth. So, what characterizes the time direction is not mechanics; is entropy, and entropy means statistical mechanics, and means. Uh, uh, that we're giving a coarse-grained description of the world in terms of temperature, entropy. So we have many degrees of freedom, and we are um, we are um, uh, uh, not describing all of them, but only a few of them. This is what entropy is about. So there's something about the flow of time which has to do with the fact that. Uh, um, we don't describe the microphysics. We have this macroscopic description. Now, if it is so, then it's very tempting to reverse the story between the flow of time and the macrophysics okay. in, in the following sense. Uh, we, we learn in, in, in physics textbook that the time passes, okay, systems automatically equilibrate because of the second law of thermodynamics. So they go to our equilibrium. And when they, go, when they go to equilibrium, they go to a state which is an equilibrium state. And this equilibrium state uh, is described uh, in the physics as one particular state in the sense of uh, uh, statistical mechanics, a probability distribution of all possible configurations. Okay? So the logic, think of the logic. Time passes and this determines a particular state. Now, the idea Alan and I uh, got independently is that maybe this is the other way around. We're, 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 we're getting it wrong. Since in the fundamental theory there's no preferred time, but there are states, right? There are states because, uh, because uh, uh, we don't see the details of the world. We have an approximate description of the world. So we give a description of the world, which is a a, a, a statistical state, a distribution of a possible configuration. Now, given a flow of time, it, it 
determines one particular distribution. Maybe we should view the other way around. Given a probabilistic distribution of the world, what we know about the world, this determines the flow of time. You can mathematically compute it that way. From the distribution, you can do a simple, and, and in our paper we wrote down these mathematical passages, um, we statistical state of the world produces a time variable. And uh, this is the idea of thermal time. And Alan Kahn pushed this further because uh, um, if you have a quantum mechanical system, by necessity, you have some randomness because quantum mechanics is randomness. Because if you measure X and P, you, they don't commute. And this non-commutativity implies some randomness. So one of the big, big mathematical results that Alan Kohn has uh, uh, obtained uh, is that uh, um, uh, using this randomness, uh, uh, he could show that any state in the sense of quantum mechanical uh, states determines a, a flow of time. And I don't want to enter into the complication of uh, Kohn's mathematics, it's for Neumann algebras, complicated stuff. In some sense, uh, this evolution is unique. In some very peculiar sense, this evolution is unique. So what Kohn is saying is that automatically, once you have the randomness of quantum mechanics, uh, you have a time flow. The thermal time idea is, is, is a simpler version of that. It's just if, if you don't know the details, your lack of knowledge of the details is such that mathematics is sufficient to pick up a specific time flow. Okay. So, uh, you see, if you study general relativity, the, the question is, uh, uh, which one of the variables do you want to call time variable? And the answer is, well, they're all a priori the same, but if you don't know the details and you have a foggy version, there's one which is preferred. And uh, let me give you, if I have one more minute on this question, Kurt, uh, a simple version of this story. Um, in special relativity, you have many time variables because if you move, uh, if you and I are moving with respect to one another, we have different Lorentz time. In the Lorentz information, there's T and T prime, there's different times, right? They're all the same. It's not one is better than, than another. They're all the same, okay? But suppose you have a cloud which is hot. When you go out in the universe and the cloud is hot, if it is hot, Okay, if you have a number of particles, they, they move, there's no preferred time. But if you have a hot cloud, this is hot and it has a temperature, which is determined by the fact that it got in equilibrium with itself. But it got in equilibrium in one Lorentz frame, not in all Lorentz frame. It's, it's an equilibrium in the frame in which the, the cloud as a whole, the center of mass of the, of the cloud is, 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 is stationary. It's only in this frame that the distribution is the distribution, is the, the Boltzmann distribution that you expect from the... So if you know the distribution, if you have a macroscopic dis description of that, you pick up a time, a preferred Lorentz time. So you see, microscopically, you don't see any preferred time, but macroscopically is one preferred time. And the idea is that that's exactly what happened in the world. I mean, we, we live in a world, we interact with the world uh, macroscopically, 
Obviously, there is a past and a future. Obviously, there is a, a, a time direction. But that's because we use these macroscopic variables. If we were really interacting with all the degrees of freedom at the level of general relativity, all variables will, will be equally temporal variables. Okay, so let me see if I can understand this and then you can correct what I'm saying. Time implies energy implies macro state as we talked about before. And then you can reverse that. But then I see that as a trade-off between precision. So if we were more precise, we wouldn't see time. That's where Alan, which I'm going to mispronounce, but the French mathematician you mentioned, the Fields medalist, Alan Conis, that's Elaine Conis, that's where he comes in by saying, this well, guy. clearly you can never be extremely precise anyway, given quantum mechanics. So that's why quantum mechanically you can just, you can induce time in that regard. So is that Correct. Okay. Correct. Exactly. Exactly so. Let me stress that it's a, it's a beautiful idea. I love it. I think it's right, but I'm not sure. It's a very speculative idea. So um, I, 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 people have been complaining about that, and it's, I think it's an open question. What are their complaints? Could help us. So. Um, the complaint is that the main complaint is that uh, it's not developed well enough because uh, um, it in an equilibrium situation, you need an equilibrium situation to single out the time variable. Uh, but actually, what we really, what really, uh, uh, what we really do in our life when we pick up a time variable is precisely because it's not an equilibrium situation. The past is different from the future. So, in a sense, it it would be good to extend this uh, term of time outside this simple equilibrium case in which the past mm. and future uh, the equilibrium we don't distinguish anymore. Um, uh, past and future to to make this story really completely coherent. Now, Leah Smolin has a book on time as well. I don't recall the name of it. If you remember, you can just say it. Do you recall? Uh, no, I forgot. Let's forget about that. Maybe the problem with time. I don't know. <laughs> he has plenty of books called The Problem With, at least in my head. Okay, so Lee Smolin has some views on time. And I recall him saying that it may be that time is the most fundamental. Now, it might... Do you, firstly, does that ring true to you? Does that, okay, great. Now, That's what Lee thinks. Prior to researching about you, Carlo, I was just thinking, well, Lee Smolin and Carlo Ravelli, loop quantum gravity, great. Let me start to research loop quantum gravity. And I was thinking that you pretty much agree with Lee on everything because in my head, you both were the same as the popularizers of loop quantum gravity and developers of it. However, as I read Order of Time, I saw there was a huge disconnect between you and him on this level. So do you mind explaining what Lee's views are on time, if you can, and then where and why you defer? Yeah. So uh, let me start by saying that Lee and I have been, uh, I think we did the best uh, physics uh, together, my best physics and his best physics probably together. Um, uh, all the, not just the beginning of loop quantum gravity, I mean, the start of loop quantum gravity, but also the, the, the calculations of the eigenvalues of the area and the operator, which are key results in, in, in quantum gravity and many other things. Um, so uh, we, we succeeded repeated in collaborating well, and uh, we, we, we have always remained very good friends all through our life since, since our young age when we met. 
Um, so he's, I count him as a, uh, one of my very, very best friends. And, uh, um, uh, however, in spite of that, or maybe precisely because of that, uh, it's not true at all that we have been agreeing on ideas all the way through. In fact, I would say even the opposite. Uh, we have been able to do physics together precisely because we disagreed through our disagreement. Interesting. Uh, through long discussions. No, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. Right, you don't right. see Going that. Back to your how point cannot on you? How the cannot you nature see of that? Yep. <laughs> exactly. So the beauty of the our collaboration for me has been uh, being able to learn from one another constantly, being constantly challenged by the other person. And uh, and and through that, getting to 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 write down equations, to do to do calculation, to put up theories, and to uh, to get results. Um, Lee also thinks this way, and Lee has a very nice way of putting this story, which I love. Uh, once in an interview, um, uh, somebody asked him about the disagreement with me, and Lee thought for a while, and then said, "Well, look, if we had." had the same ideas, then one of the two of us would have been superfluous. And I think it's a great idea, right? So it's useless, somebody who agrees with you <laughs> on everything. So that's the, that's the premise. Um, now, uh, one of the biggest uh, disagreements uh, which has grown out uh, in, the, in, in the last decades is precisely about time. It's not so strong as uh, one might think, uh, because uh, there are a lot of uh, common um, points that Lee and I agree. Uh, I, I mean, I, I've been quoted often to say time does not exist, but uh, this is easily, that's a slogan. Slogans are, you know, you can take it the way that they want, and it's easily misinterpreted. Time does not exist, does not mean that we have to think about reality as just static, nothing happening. It's the other way around. I think that, uh, um, you know, a static reality is time passes and nothing happened. But time passes and nothing happened. Um, I think we have to think about reality as a sequence of happenings, not a set of things. Before we talked about things, but if we go into relativity, to general relativity, what we actually describe in the, it's always the evolution of things. So um, even an object, the object we talked about, the pen, what it really is in, in, in my eyes at the light of general relativity, it's a sequence of processes. It's something happening. It's happening now and then now and then now and then now. And it's just processes resemble one another. And this is what we call the pen. And sorry so, to to interject. When you say happenings, are they the same as space time events, or is that or is that different? Yeah, yeah. If you want uh, uh, an event, it's something that is uh, it's uh, it's just limited in space and time, and and reality is this ensemble of this. Okay, so uh, it's 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 an ensemble of events, where event means a region of space time, but also means a, a, a something that is happening in that region of space time. In fact, I think what the reason space-time is, is just a happening. Right, right. Whatever happens in that region. That's what the region of space-time is. And what happens is that there is a field, there's a gravitational field, there is an electromagnetic field, there are electrons, whatever happens there. And if there are no electrons and no uh, electromagnetic field, there's still the gravitational field. 
And if you take away the electromagnetic field, there's nothing happening. There's no, that region space time is not there. All right. So this, hap this happening view of the world is something Lee is insisting a lot. And I also agree with him completely, 100%. We should talk about that, this dynamical aspect of all the processes, not the entities in isolation. So that's the part we agree. It's a big part. So all the people who talk about a static four-dimensional universe, uh, frozen time, um, a block universe, uh, I think it's misleading. The block universe is just a you know a picture in our head of of an ensemble of uh, of, of events. If I think of the story of your life, Kurt, it's not a block universe story of your life. Things happened. Okay, it's an ensemble of happenings. Good. So it's the same for the universe. Now, where do Lee and I disagree. We disagree about the origin of the distinction between the past and the future. That's the disagreement. Lee uh, holds on to the idea that the past and the future are intrinsically and profoundly different at the sort of fundamental level. So these happenings are happening from the past to the future. Something the past exists, fixed, it has happened, it is unchangeable, the future is genuinely open. Ah, oh, interesting, okay. That's a disagreement. I disagree with that. I think that uh, it seems to me that our best physics is telling us that this very vivid difference between the past and the future is not in the grammar of nature, in the elementary grammar of nature. It only comes in at the statistical thermodynamical level, when we have a, a macroscopic description and therefore we have entropy and therefore we have things, you know, ice melting down uh, and, uh, and, and all the irreversible phenomena. The, all the irreversible phenomena are macroscopic. The irreversibility uh, characterizes the, the macroscopic variables. There's no irreversibility of the microscopic variables. So the distinction between the past and the future, in my opinion, it's only for big things. An electron doesn't distinguish the past from the future. A, a, an atom does not distinguish the past from the future. A glass of water with ice and water does distinguish. But the distinction is in the, in the picture, in the words glass, uh, water and ice, in the macroscopic description. So that's a, that's a point where we disagree. So we, you know, the, the philosophical idea that it's a, uh, the, the description of the world is about happenings and not about things, uh, not about static. We're really on the same ground, but the orientation of this happening, is this happening oriented in time, from the past to the future, is where we disagree. I think that it comes later on, at the fundamental level, we should forget about that. The, the laws just don't distinguish between the two, and Lee thinks that in some sense the laws distinguish between the two. So what does he say in response to your justification for saying that it's the blurriness that generates time or the macroscopic states. What's his response? He said, you be um, you, you be you, Carlo. I, uh, I'm not sure. In fact, next, uh, in, in next couple of weeks, I want, I'm going to Toronto and, and, and that's one thing I want to talk with him. I want to say, tell me exactly what, why do you think it's so, um, I, my reading, but he might, he might disagree with my reading, is that um, 
the intuition of the difference between past and future for him is so strong. Um, <clears throat> so he's holding that, on to this yeah. romantic idea of ex- experiential time and wanting to, <laughs> wanting to. That's my forcing that's my it down. Reading. Onto, okay. That's my reading, right? Uh, that's my reading. But you know, he might answer something else. Okay. What about Janice? Sorry. What about? Julian Barber, the Janice book. Oh, Julian. Yeah. Now, I haven't had a chance to read his book. I started reading it, but I don't know what his theory is. I think as far as I got was just the history of thermodynamics. So what is the Janus point? What is his theory on time? And then obviously compare and contrast with yours. So a few coordinates here. <clears throat> First of all, Julian is a fantastic historian of science. He wrote uh, a big, thick, scholarly book on the history of mechanics, which is a total masterpiece, in my opinion. Um, then he, uh, it's known for two ideas about time. One, uh, uh, which is uh, several, that's, is mostly known for that. Uh, some time ago, um, his uh, idea that we should think uh, at, at, the, at the world in a completely timeless way, just a distribution probability as instantaneous um, configurations. And recently he came out with a new idea, uh, which is this Janus point. So uh, I distinguish three Barbus. <laughs> Barbus, the, Barbus, the historian of physics, uh, which I you know, chapeau, as the uh, French say, I'm in infinite uh, respect of him. I learned so much from him. Um, Barber as the guy denying uh, time in the sense of uh, uh, his old book on time, and the third Barber, which is about this Janus point. So the second one, I was never convinced much because he had a complicated story about the universe being extended in space but not in time, uh, which I did not find convincing. I, I We could go into that, uh, but it's we should not talk about that. We should talk about the third one. And the third one, this Janus point idea, uh, it's indeed uh, um, quite uh, um, intriguing. He's not the only one who has been recently talking about. Sean Carroll has uh, also uh, considered this idea. There's there's an increasing attention to this idea. And the idea is that... Um, uh, we are wrong when we say that generically, if you take a system, generically most solutions of its equation of motion is in equilibrium, so there is no past and future. Um, it's true that if you if you, if you if you put the gas in a box and you close it with a fixed amount of energy, uh, most possible solutions or where the gas goes in long time is in equilibrium. And in equilibrium, the entropy is constant. There is no past and future. Um, so then we have to say why the entropy was low in the past. It seems strange. The point is that the universe is not like a gas in a box. That's the main observation. <laughs> that also sounds like when we were talking about that there are some problems with applying our limited scale physics or when we do experiments to the universe as a whole. I think that's where I got it from was reading the Janus point. He was saying the universe is not a box. So you can't apply the same laws of thermodynamics to the universe as a whole? Yes, exactly. So, But there's a specific, very, very specific reason for which you cannot. That uh, 
there is no equilibrium state because uh, uh, if you think about it, imagine the universe just a bunch of particles in an infinite space, okay? They can spread forever, okay? So they never get to a real, uh, to a real equilibrium. So let's consider one possible configuration, okay, uh, of these particles, okay? A generic one, they will just move somehow, maybe they come close to some point and then they disperse. So if you look at the future, they disperse. If you come back, there's some moment in which they're closer and then they disperse again. So the entropy in that configuration, okay, it's up, goes to a minimum and then grows. Now, of course, there's no preferred direction of time because, you know, both directions disperse, but there's a minimum. So if you're on one side, the entropy is growing like that. If you're on the other side, the entropy ah, is growing like uh -huh. that. So we're just on one side. And of course, the entropy is growing, right? If you take a mountain, any mountains, it has, you know, one direction which is down and the other direction which is up. So generically, there's always one direction down or one direction up. Mm. So the idea is, well, well, maybe we got confused about the model of the bagasse in the box and the equilibrium. Forget the equilibrium. Maybe the right way is thinking that generically, uh, histories, possible history of the world, uh, evolve in some way, and necessarily there is one point which is minimal entropy, and then it goes one side or the other. This is the core of the idea. Maybe I'm oversimplifying it a little bit, but that's the core of the idea. So um, there are some questions about that. There are some possible doubts. I'm not sure it's, it's really a solution of the of of the end of, of of which problem. Or the problem of why the entropy is low in the past. <laughs> this, you know, I mean, why the time is oriented? Because in the in the past there was low entropy. So why in the past there was low entropy? That's an attempt to answer that question. There is something ringing very interesting, and I think there's a discussion going on right now among theoretical physicists and philosophers uh, on should we buy this argument? Is it correct? Um, I, I'm interested in the discussion and I, I hope that in some years it will clean up. Namely, yes, that's a good way of, of thinking about uh, why entropy was low in the past, in one direction, which is the one we call the past, uh, or uh, no, come on, we're getting confused about probabilities here, you're, you're surreptitiously squeezing in some 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 intuition which is not correct. I, I don't know. It's, uh, it, it's, um, it's relatively recent that we've been thinking about that and uh, I'm, I'm open to, to this idea. I found it interesting. This minimum point, does he say that's the Big Bang or does the Big Bang happen at somewhere on the up? So it's yeah. still relatively low yeah, to us. In a sense, or... that, in a sense yeah, that's what we call the Janus point because Janus is this god uh, in uh, in uh, Rome, it's it's Latin god, um, which is the god of the doors of the of the change of the year. It has two two faces. It was always uh, uh, represented uh, with a head with two faces. One face is this way, one face is the other way. So the Janus point is a point where the future, you know, the one future this way, one future that way, because uh, the future is determined by entropy growing. So this is the minimum of the entropy. So entropy goes this way and entropy goes this way. So whoever is here or whenever you are here, 
you see the future this way. Whenever here, you see the future this way. So you always see the big bang in the past, right? That's what yeah. you call the past. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now to Wolfram, which we could take out. So don't worry. Do you have any <laughs> thoughts on Wolfram's model critiques? Any, what do you find interesting? What do you find not interesting? Convincing, not convincing? Um, I, I am not uh, overexcited by the idea that a simple classical um, uh, mm, microscopical model could uh, uh, could reproduce the the complexity of the physics that 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 we see. I, Why do you call I it a classical think... model? Because it's definite. The hypergraph is definite, or what? Uh, it's classical in the sense that uh, uh, we can view this as evolution in time, and it, at, at each, each specific steps. moment yeah. there I are see. there are steps, uh, the fundamental variables which have a, uh, a, a unique value. So in that sense, is is classical. Quantum mechanics variables don't don't have a specific value. Um, I think that to from here to reconstruct the complexity of quantum mechanics in full has not been done yet. I have not seen it uh, yet. And uh, I, I, I doubt that one could actually uh, do it and, unless I see it in, uh, in detail. There are aspects of quantum mechanics um, like those uh, captured by Cochin's uh, uh, spectre uh, theorem, uh, or by the Bell inequalities, uh, uh, which are very hard to reproduce this way, uh, notoriously very hard to reproduce this way. So um, one might copy some aspect of quantum mechanics. Uh, I, I haven't seen the full prediction of quantum mechanics coming out yet. What about for general relativity? I don't know if you've heard the claims or read the paper that the hypergraph model can reproduce. And you can tell me, yeah. it's, just so you know, my naive assessment, I believe what they do is an ADM decomposition at some point. And so whenever I hear that, it to me, okay, so you're foliating. So then you have a preferred time. And for some reason that I'm averse to that because space time to me shouldn't be able, at least generically, is not able to be foliated. But I don't know if that's if that's just my own personal taste, and I should, or if that's an actual argument against or for it. Like I this don't know. This is your personal taste, uh, uh, but it's also my personal taste. Uh, uh, but it's not an argument because uh, if it was possible to derive uh, all the uh, all the theory from a completely different point of view, namely not the point of view of general covariance, not the point of view of Einstein, but from the point of view of uh, existing or special preferred foliation, uh, then okay, we would have to confront that. Uh, but once again, um, there's some aspect of generativity which has been recovered. Uh, I. I I try to read some of the papers on the recovery of general relativity. Um, you know, it's if you have something geometrical and you go at large scale, uh, 
generativity is uh, come up it's not too hard to uh, uh, to come out with uh, uh, with the Einstein equations. Uh, but once again, this is not full general relativity uh, yet. And uh, if it is full general relativity, it would predict definitely corrections to general relativity, uh, which we would be testable. Okay? So until I see uh, this testing, namely that generativity is factually wrong on some short scale, and, and, and we see the discrepancy, um, I would say, well, this is a more complicated way of saying the same story, which it's distinguishable, and is based on different principles, which are not the ones which seem to be implemented in the world. Namely, in the world, it seems to be there's no refer reference frame, as you say. There's no preferred foliation, as you say. So that's the kind of thing we have learned from generativity. So why do we have to give them up? Um, you know, let's go to Copernicus once again. After Copernicus um, did his model, it, it seemed to work very well on something. One thing it, it did work very well is that if you, if you make the, the other planets go around the sun, uh, you understand why uh, the, the other planets have a feature of their motion which have a period of one year. Because they go around the sun, so of course they were. Uh, but the strongly counterintuitive things was the Earth move. So uh, some people, and in particular Tycho Brahe, the greatest astronomer uh, uh, that uh, you know Kepler used his data for for doing his work, Tycho Brahe came out with a system which is called the Tychonic system, the system of Tycho Brahe, which was intermediate between uh, Copernicus and. Uh, and, Ptolemaic. Uh, uh, and Ptolemy, which was that the Earth is the center of the universe. The Earth is fixed, so there's nothing counterintuitive. The Sun goes around, and all the other planets go around the Sun. And it's a brilliant idea, if you want, right? Okay, you, you get the, uh, the cake and, and, and you eat it too. So you, you get the advantage of Copernicus without the conceptual difficulty of Copernicus. So in a sense, it was to try to recover the advantage of Copernican, staying with the old... Uh, mind frame, which is the Earth is fixed, okay? Is it coherent? Yes, it's coherent. Has it been historically useful? No. I mean, we would have never got to Newton or Kepler or Galileo. And Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And modern physics was that way. The point about Kepler was precisely that if we give up this moving, if we get out of this mind frame of we are static, we have a better way of understanding the world. So Tycho was completely wrong scientifically. Of course, we recognize it completely wrong scientifically, right? So I think that when we have learned general relativity or when we learn special relativity, of course we can, you know, by being super smart like Tycho, arrange things that we stay with the old conceptual thing and recover the same thing with some, some technicalities. But we don't learn more about the world. We just hang on yourself to old thinking and don't accept the new thinking, which is the one that allows to go faster. The new thinking is just move. Forget that. Forget this intuition that my ground is not moving. So it's the same with this uh, reconstruction of quantum mechanics for underlying basically classical system. I don't believe that is impossible. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, suppose it's possible. Is it, do we believe that this pushing them ahead is telling us that really, really nature in its de death, it's like we thought yesterday? Come on. Nature in its death is like we think today, not like we thought yesterday. This moves. Is this what you, in your mind, in the back of your mind, perhaps, think of Lee Smolin's idea of time? Like, Lee, you are trying to yeah. hold on. Yeah. It's the same story. It's exactly the same story. So take the, take the discovery seriously, right? What Einstein did uh, when uh, he did special relativity, there were these Maxwell equations um, that seemed to contradict Galilean relativity. Uh, which one is wrong? Einstein's answer is neither. They're both right. Believe the physics, right? Uh, and, and, and when I said general relativity, he took this idea of Maxwell of the fields and he applied to, to gravity. So he believed the physics, believed the new results that work. Those are empirically, don't believe your intuition, believe that it works. What if Sean Carroll, who is a proponent of the many worlds, says to you, Carlo, you're trying to hold, you say that the many worlds is distasteful because look, the cost, yeah, but you're calling it a cost because you're trying to hold on to something else. So what if Sean says that to you? Um, I, I am in a discussion with, with, with Sean on a, on a, on a number of things. He, not only uh, take the many world interpretation seriously, he likes it, but he likes a particularly radical version of okay. the um, of the Everettian or many world interpretation. If it's not but radical he, enough already, right? He, he yeah, he, he called it the mad dog. He called it the mad dog uh, many world interpretation. The mad dog. Uh, uh, in which there is only Hilbert space and state and uh, Hamiltonian, nothing else. So he want to extract everything from from that. Uh, I'm, 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 I, I'm debating that. I I think 
it's not going to work in general relativity for this or that reason. I mean, he has he has an answer, which is, yeah, you know, Carlo, you have this thermal time. I can use your thermal time to make it answer. So he's trying to use my own ideas against myself. <laughs> uh, um, uh, what would he say uh, to me? Well, I think that there is a, he belongs to a um, a group of physicists uh, that are very much in love with many world because they find it very simple and and straightforward. There's just this wave function, and out of this wave function we can extract uh, um, we can extract the rest. So. Um, uh, I I never heard him um, telling me what he thinks in the relational interpretation is is wrong because when we when we have talked with um, we talked about his ideas uh, especially his this mad dog version of of Everett and I I, I sort of uh, tried to point out what what are the the, the, the technical limitations of this uh, um, of this idea. Um, there is some people who learned quantum mechanics starting from Schrodinger and can only think about quantum mechanics in terms of the wave function. The quantum mechanic was not born with Schrodinger, it was born with Heisenberg and uh, um, uh, Max Born and uh, um, the, the, the Gottingen people in, in matrix mechanics before Schrodinger, Pauli, uh, Dirac. Uh, and uh, it can be thought without any wave function, without any uh, any state. And I think that uh, by introducing the uh, the wave function, Schrodinger confused things, so made calculation easier, but confused the, the ontology, the, the picture. So everybody started thinking about this wave and, and, and got confused. Um, I think that uh, Sean is definitely not making the mistake of uh, holding on to classical intuition, to, to the opposite. I mean, he, he takes the, the, the Schrodinger wave function very seriously and tries to build everything uh, from that. So he's blaming me, probably, uh, what I am blaming Wolfram and Lee, <laughs> uh, namely that I want to stay attached to classical to variables having values, describing the world in terms of facts. Um, that's probably he, what he uh, he want to he would like to blame me. My answer is that uh, I think it doesn't work to think that the world is just a wave function as a way he would like to. He would like to say it's a wave function and nothing else. There's this vector in Hilbert space and nothing else. And I think that uh, vector in Hilbert spaces don't give me pens. Don't give me books. Don't give me the concrete description of the world. To 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 have a quantum theory, you need a much more met many ingredients. Uh, so it's not clean the pure wave function picture of the world. Um, you need the operators. You need again values. You need again vectors. You need this structure, and this structure he hopes to just take it out from the Hamiltonian. Uh, but once again, I have not seeing it happening uh, yet. So I think that the, um, this way of thinking about quantum mechanics is not going to be fruitful. We need the algebra of observables. Quantum mechanics about non-commutative non variables. 
The core of quantum mechanics is PQ minus QP equal IH bar. This is the core of, of quantum mechanics. Variables don't commute, like Alan Kohn would insist upon. It's a discovery that the variables we use to describe the world are not always defined because they are non-commuting, so they cannot be both defined at the same time. That's core, not the wave function. Now, how is he throwing that out by trying to put so much emphasis on the wave function? How is he throwing out those non-commuting operators? Oh, that's a mag, the mad dog interpretation. There are no, 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 so uh, abelian? no operators at the fundamental oh, no, level. Okay. There is only the wave function, and then he says uh, there is a Hamiltonian, and the Hamiltonian has some structure in it, and from the structure of the Hamiltonian, one can. Okay. Derive from the structure of the convert, the composition of Hilbert spaces in subsystems, and the subsystem from the subsystem I can extract something which corresponds to the algebra of the observables. So it's a very indirect way of trying to extract it from the dynamics. It's a dynamics that uh, should give us the variables. It's a long way to go. Is there a reason that he's starting, he's saying that there, let's imagine the wave function of the universe. See, in quantum field theory, and I'm not saying anything you don't know, it, it's like operator value. It's not that people say it's field, but it's like a strange field. It's an operator valued field. Because it's not exactly when yeah, the yeah. mystics so say he, it's like all like water and waves. Well, it's like an operator wave, if you want to call that. So why is he not using, why is he going, why is he going to QM and not Q of T? In other words. Like the wave function of Q. No, no, no. He, he has in mind uh, quantum field theory. He has in mind QFT. But 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 the particular structure that defines QFT, he would like to say that is only written in the Hamiltonian. Uh, so he would not. He would say that you know the fundamental theory of the world is not QFT. Is it's, it's a very rich structure, as you say. There are these quantum fields which are actually operating. So it's local quantum operators, uh, it's a field of operators, uh, which commute, don't commute, have this all, all this problem. So you have to give all this machinery to make it work. And this machinery, the operators, the fields are observable. So what we interact, describe how we interact with the field, right? Uh, he wants to discard all that. He wants to say there's only a big Hilbert space, a Hilbert space is just, you know, a gray thing, we don't look at anything, and Hamiltonian. Okay. Hamiltonian is just how the, what, what gives the motion of, 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 of the state in the Hilbert space. But you will say the Hamiltonian has some structure inside it because it, we can, its eigenvalues have some structure, some, some, some way of combining them, and these secretly know about all the machinery of quantum field theory. Uh, it's, it's a technical step. I don't know if I if I, if I need to go into that. Um, but 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 he has in mind quantum field theory. In fact, the, the the property of the Hamiltonian that he uses is is the locality of the interaction. The Hamiltonian can be written as a uh, and, and the locality gives the region of space. Uh, so he has this. This uh, extreme uh, Everettian or extreme uh, 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 many world. Uh, and my objection is you need a Hamiltonian. You don't have an Hamiltonian generativity because there's no time. Okay, now what is your opinion on Eric Weinstein's geometric unity? Have you had a chance to go through any of the papers? No. 
No, I should. I'm sorry. I, I should, but I don't. I, I, I could not form an opinion. Okay, that's fine. How about Donald Hoffman's? Have you? Do you know Donald Hoffman? So he has a no, book called sorry. The Case Against Reality, and yours is called Reality is Not What It Seems. Yes. Oh, this is a big philosophical discussion. Um, he definitely had um, a number of very good points um, and some um, radical conclusions from from those. Um, I, I I know about a little bit about his ideas, uh, but I have not read his book, so I'm I'm not sure I have a good. Uh, gauging of exactly what you want to draw uh, from that, um, but let me let me say the core of of, of what I think. Um, we interact with the external world around us uh, through um, our senses and through our uh, um, uh, the the way the brain uh, interprets um, what we see around us, and. Uh, I think it's uh, a, a, a very good and, and, and very deep observation to um, recognize, to realize that we call what we call the objects around us uh, are to a large extent uh, uh, mental constructs um, that uh, our brain uh, puts together uh, on the basis of how useful uh, this construct has been in our evolution to to um, to allow us to to survive so uh, in 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 a sense we're we're seeing a movie of what is outside uh, which is vaguely related to what is outside whatever it's happening outside and is deeply um, uh, colored by our reading of it um this is a this is an observation which has been made in philosophy uh, many times in fact is one of the main uh things for which Kant uh, is known Kant is considered a major philosopher in, uh, in the western tradition but it's it's others others before and after have uh, have made this observation and i think it's important uh, because what we're describing at, at every level is not the world, it's the world with respect to us, it's the world as yes, we read it. Yes, that's right, right, right. Um, and I think this this has to be deeply interiorized, even if it seems, what has a natural reaction to that? I mean, there's a chair there, and of course, I mean, I am saying, well, come on, the chair is there independent of me, and there's a sense in which this is not true. Uh, the chair is my particular reading of what is going on for a number of reasons, for a variety of reasons that he, he goes in details and they're very right. So the disagreement is? Now, so far, I'm, I'm, I'm completely with him. Uh, now there are two points. One is that, all right, so what, um, then what? <laughs> um, and there are two points I would uh, not really object, but I would say how I think about this. First of all, that this does not mean that our mental world is more solid and known than the external. Because exactly the same arguments uh, employed here for the external world, exactly the same arguments work for our mental world. Namely, 
there is nothing certain either in what we see as our sense of ourselves or our perception. These are also complicated uh, uh, cultural biological construction that our representation of the world uh, has. So our representation of the world include a notion of myself, a notion of my representation, a notion of my representations, which are all notions that were developed culturally. So the same criticism against the existence of outside objects, I think hold for the existence of uh, the self uh, and my mental world. Okay? So this leaves us where? I think, and this is a, my, 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 my arrival point, uh, this leaves us, in my opinion, toward the anti-foundationalism that we talked at the beginning of this story. Namely, we should not ask the wrong question. The wrong question is what is really, really, really outside there? That's the wrong question. The right question is, um, I see a mirror. Okay. It seems to me that a chair is the other side of the mirror. Is it true or false? No, it's false. It's an illusion. The chair is not the other side of the mirror. The chair is here. Okay? The chair is really here and falsely outside of the mirror. That's correct. Okay? We can play this game step by step by realizing that things are not like that. We're misunderstanding. There is a better way of understanding that. They're not like that. They misunderstand. There's a better way. If we ask the question, okay, so what is the ultimate? reality, independently of any representation, that's not a good question, in my opinion. That's a wrong question. Reality is that chair. Reality is that sun. Reality is that chair in the mirror. And their relations, their relative relations. So I would jump out of this discussion, okay, and distinguish, if you want, the apparent reality and the ultimate reality, and forget about the ultimate reality. We are talking about this actual reality, and that's what we call reality. Reality is the ensemble of this phenomena of which I am part, and you are part, and the chair is part. And all the way we understand better and better and better, we can say they are made by atoms, for fantastic, we can say the atoms are a quantum mechanical object that interact with us, fantastic. We we get more and more complexity of the phenomena, but we, if we get, if we ask the question, wh where do we ground all that? What is the ultimate reality? Forget about this. So, if the case against reality that he's making is the case, is the case against the idea of an ultimate reality out there, and in favor of an ultimate reality for our impressions, I disagree, because there is a good way of understanding our impression as caused by the chair, that chair, not a metaphysical chair. Or if you want, in Kantian terms, who cares about the noumenon? We care about the phenomena. What we call reality is a phenomena, not an hypothetical thing behind the phenomena. That's my take on it. When I hear that, well, here's what I'm thinking. 
Okay, you said the chair is not really behind the mirror. It's really over to the left of me. Okay. Yeah. And that's what I mean by really. Right. We have this notion of really. We have this notion of reality. Then if I was to get you or anyone else, let's say people in general, to s what are some facts that of what is a part of reality? See, we're trying to derive a definition from looking at, well, I say that this microphone is really in front of me. And then I may point to other objects and say that really is the case. But then, well, what if there's an inconsistency in what we call a part of our reality and not? Then which one do we take as more... Why do we favor this microphone being really in front of me, but Santa Claus not really existing? No, you have, you have. I got, I got exactly the point. I think we have to use really. Um, is it coherence? Just which ones makes cohere together? Consistent? What is it? I, I think we have to realize that uh, uh, really and reality, it's uh, uh, it, it can be used in different. Uh, right, right, right. We do use at different levels, and it's fine. We do at different levels. For instance, uh, um, did uh, uh, um, Hamlet really killed his uncle? Yes, he did really kill his uncle. I mean, um, if you tell me, you know, Hamlet did not kill his uncle at the end of the play, I say, no, 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 he did. He really did. Look, I come with Shakespeare text and say, it's written here. I'm killing you, Uncle Paul. Okay. So I'm using really, okay, okay, uh, it's it's real. And now you tell me, come on, it's not real because it's a play. So of course it's not real, okay? So when I'm a right, when I say I'm real, when I say, I'm both right, in both cases, I'm just meaning two different real. So real is in a context. If you want to take real outside the context, what is really, really, really real behind all the context, that has no meaning. So talking about the mirror, we make a distinction between the chair on the other side of the mirror and the chair, that chair there. And uh, that distinction, it's meaningful and we correctly use one to be real and one not to be real. And I can argue exactly what I mean. Right? I mean, if I walk against the mirror, I just <laughs> hit my nose against the mirror. While if I walk against that chair, I can sit down. I mean, just there's a very precise sense in which one is more real than the other, okay? And in the, in, in, if I'm dreaming, there's a very precise sense in which I say that's not real, it was a dream, okay? But within the dream itself, there are things which are real in the dream and not real in the dream, okay? In the dream, I can dream of somebody who is telling me, uh, I mean, look, you thought that it's so, but it's not so, the real is something else. So within the dream, there is a notion of reality there. In the movie, there is a notion of reality there. Uh, so the, the question of what is real is a very slippery question. It's a context by context, it makes sense. But every time within a context in which we're giving something for granted and we're building on. And when, when I hear the argument, um, look, uh, the the way my brain uh, uh, makes sense of that chair, it's because in my brain there is a notion of sitting, there is a notion because there is a space of colors, blah, 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 blah. And therefore, uh, the chair, it's, 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 it's really a chair in, in an illusion for me. The context is a context in which I'm giving for real a number of things. My brain, 
the 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 the, the motion the the the, the the, the existence of light coming to me, you, you, you're creating a context. So that within that context, there's a notion of reality and, 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 and illusion. And what about that context itself? Is it real or is it not real? It's, I, I think that we describe the phenomena that we interact with. And within description, that description is reality. That's what we mean by reality. And if we try to say, uh, Beyond the phenomena, what is the true ultimate reality? We're making a mistake. Uh, and this is a mistake that a lot of philosophers have warned us against. Many, Hume, Kant, um, Wittgenstein, Nagarjuna, a lot of phenomena say, careful. I mean, you take a distinction, the, the chair in the mirror and, and, and the chair you see there, and you try to replay that. That's everything you know about the universe and something else which is a real, real, real thing. That's a real, real thing. Forget about it. Don't, don't do that game. So I would say that we don't have a case against reality. We have a case for reality and against the idea that there's an ultimate reality behind it, beyond everything. When you say that, what I'm wondering is, is that because we can never know what's outside of what's knowable? So you gave Kant the phenomenon, the noumena, give that example. Is it because of that we can just not know it? Why is it that it's so foolish to talk about the foundational reality? Uh, to the extent in which we can know something else, we, we may hope to know something else, we, we correctly put this question uh, on the table, right? Uh, but only to the extent in which we may have a hope to know something else. Um, I'll explain my reasoning behind the question. And they, so when I'm speaking to some non-dualist, I don't know if you know what non-dualism is. They would say consciousness is primary. And then I pose the question, well, how do you know, what if there's something outside consciousness? A simple question. They would say, yeah, but you can never know that. Well, it's true. I can't experience what's outside my experience by definition. But that to me doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Now, you, one can say that it's foolish to talk about it because it never interacts with you and you have no clue. That's another argument. But to say it doesn't exist because it's outside of our experience, I don't find that particularly convincing. So that's what's behind my question. No, no, it's, 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 it's a good question. Uh, I, I, I see the point. Um, uh, We, uh, what is the use of, of imagining that there is something beyond our knowledge? Okay, I think there are two uses. One is that uh, because perhaps we may get to know it. And the other is just, you know, to recognize that, uh, I mean, who knows, there might be or there might not be something. And these are two very different situations. Uh, namely, uh, if, if I see a chair and I suspect that it might be in, understandable in terms of atoms, I can ask the question, uh, maybe beyond the appearance of the chair, there is, a, there is a atomic structure. 
And then I can do some science or I can do some investigation or I can do be Boltzmann and come up with an explanation of temperature on the basis of that. Or be Einstein and come up with a Brownian motion and from the atoms explained by Brownian motion. Or then, you know, be IBM that make a microscope and see the atoms. So beyond some appearances, I suspected that there was some reality, uh, a better, deeper um, description of reality, and that allowed me to get a better description of the world. That's, it's a situation in which it's good to say, well, maybe I just don't know something, which I might know it. But if the argument, uh, like the case against reality, is that there is a reality which is in principle unknowable, that I cannot know about that, which is a completely different story, is to say, uh, maybe there is an aspect of beyond what we call reality usually, which is in principle inaccessible. And then what interest do we have on that? On that? I mean, why should we talk about that? I mean, suppose the, you know, I come to you and say, you know, I believe that this is a universe, but there's an extra, another direct dimension where there are, you know, green dragons uh, going around and speaking Chinese to one another. Okay, but they never interact with us. We never interact with them. And, uh, mm. and there's just totally, uh, and then you say, how, how do you know about that? I mean, I don't, but can you disprove it? No, I cannot disprove it. But what's the interest of this story? Zero. So I think that ultimate reality is like dragons speaking Chinese to one another and playing football in another dimension. We should not talk about... <laughs> By reality, we mean what we interact with, with the complexity of the different layers. And we may find other layers perfectly, but we shouldn't worry about this uh, not being the totality of things, because that's the totality of things we're interested about. Here's what I think of when I hear that. Again, the word pragmatism comes up because you're talking about, well, what's the use of it? What's the point of it? So then I'm wondering, well, is is reality or theorizing tied to pragmatism? In some sense, yes, because we're finite beings, we have to choose to do something. But then can we not philosophize for the sake of philosophizing? So that's what occurs to me then at the same time when saying, well, we don't know if these Chinese dragons are playing football in some other dimension that never interacts with us. However, I would say it's still, firstly, it's fun to think about Chinese football playing dragons. And second, just like we were talking about in the beginning, scientists have an aversion, or generally now, contemporary scientists have an aversion to philosophizing. They would say, well, this is much of what you're talking about, especially when it comes to metaphysics, is unfalsifiable. Science is a methodology. Let's apply that. Let's stick to our mathematics. But then you were making the great argument, which is, that leads us to plenty of places, even if it seems misleading at first, or even if it seems to not interact with us first. So that's what else I think about it, is that, okay, even if we say there are these non-interacting Chinese dragons that play football, okay, let me hear you out. Do you truly believe that? Do you have some great arguments for it? Let's hear it. Okay, let's think about that. Would this be the case of that? And then you can arrive someplace interesting. So I'd say, First, you said it's about a point. What is the point? What is the use? Then I say, well, that's pragmatism. That's pragmatism in the sense of it has to have a use to us. 
And I'm saying, well, we could talk about that. But then also at the same time, there could be a use in the sense that, well, we could talk about incomprehensible, unfalsifiable notions and still lead us somewhere propitious in the long run. Okay, so that's what I think. Now, I say that, and I'm curious, what are your thoughts on what I've just said? Oh, um, I, I would not disagree with you. Um, I think there is a tradition in philosophy. So let me develop something I hinted before. There's a tradition in philosophy, which is to warn uh, philosophy as a cure. Wittgenstein is a master of that cure against wrong questions. Uh, we're wrong. What does wrong mean here? Uh, you probably would call me a pragmatist if you say wrong means useless. Um, so, uh, like not good for us ultimately leads us astray, but as humans, um, yeah, so just uh, take us to the wrong, uh, to, to the wrong, uh, if, if we stay in science, science was often liberated, uh, uh by philosophical thinking that uh, science often made step ahead by getting input from philosophy that said, well, you don't, you don't have to ask this question. Um, uh, uh, certainly this played a role, Copernicus, but played a bigger role in Einstein. Einstein uh, got from Mach the idea that uh, uh, the asking the question of uh, uh, what it's really, really meaning of two things happening at the same time is just a wrong question. We forget about that. That's not, meaningful. Um, and uh, 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 also from Mark, Heisenberg took the idea that uh, uh, the electron doesn't have a position at any time uh, directly from this is a this is a wrong you, you, you're imposing a, a... so there, there is a there's a tradition in philosophy which is warning uh, uh, against the wrong kind of questions and uh, I think what I'm saying here, what I'm trying to say here, is that uh, um, it's uh, the notion of reality is good uh, because we we use it to distinguish the the, the chair in the mirror from the chair uh, on which I can sit, to distinguish the dream from the from what I see when I'm awake, for describing what is a, what is in a play or in a novel from what is not in a play in a novel. You, or, or or for distinguish, I mean, you tell me that yesterday you met. Uh, uh, John and say, is that real or false? I mean, <laughs> you lie. That's is meaningful. This is uh, we know exactly what you mean by real and false here. Um, but then, if we take this notion of real and we make it, uh, 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 we extrapolate it to say everything we see is not real uh, because everything we see. Uh, has a level of illusion of some kind, much weaker kind of the mirror, much weaker kind, uh, it's good that we realize that there's a level of illusion, but then we are postulating that there is an underlying reality behind that, and that postulation might be wrong, uh, simply wrong, or at least it's, let's put it this way, it's remarkable that science failed to get to that ultimate reality so far. So why should we expect it? We, what is an ultimate reality? I mean, quantum fields? I mean, we don't even know exactly what is a quantum field because of the complication of quantum mechanics. We know what is a classical field. Um, 
quantum field is something that manifests itself with particles. Okay, but the particles are not real. So we are confused on the ultimate reality, even in contemporary physics, um, in contemporary physics uh, today. Uh, not to mention about in philosophy in general, what is the ultimate reality? Matter, energy, God, spirits, language, uh, you know, everybody comes out with, a, with an ultimate reality story and, and, and fail to convince the others. Um, so the perspective I find it uh, interesting is to de-emphasize the notion of ultimate reality. Ah, and, uh, interesting, interesting, interesting. And use the word reality at, at, at level by level. I mean, there's, it's real that there's a chair there, but it's also real that that chair is has some illusory thing. It's also real that it's just a bunch of atoms. Both things are true. Uh, and, and, and within each context, something is real, something is it's also real. And we can add context, add, add levels in which is a better understanding of reality uh, without getting trapped into, oh my God, we don't have access to reality. We do have access to reality. That's the chair. Okay, I'll explain my thoughts, what occurs to me, and then we can get to rapid fire questions and answers just from the audience because you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Is that cool? Absolutely. Okay. This has been a very philosophical uh, take. Little physics, little loop quantum gravity, little quantum. This is very, very good. Somehow. I guess basic philosophy of science and physics understanding and the nature of reality. Let me recapitulate what you said so I make sure that we're on the same page. There are different ways that we use the word reality, just like there are different ways we use the word time, and just like there are different ways we use the word almost any noun, essentially, depending on the context. So let's imagine we can put these contexts in separate boxes. Much of the confusion occurs when we think, well, we mean, well, much of, much of miscommunication is we intend it to be from box A, but you perceive it as from being from box B, so the contexts are mixed up. And what I was wondering is when it comes to reality, even within the same context, I don't see there being an internally consistent, even within the context. And by the way, you mentioned Wittgenstein, Wittgenstein had this notion of language games. I believe the language games would be the equivalent of context here, boxes. I'm wondering if there's an internally an internally consistent notion of reality. Okay, so, well, and then where was I going with that? Ah, ah, okay, now my, what? Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash theories. I think is, at least I haven't seen any. And anytime I try to come up with, well, I haven't seen any internally consistent definition of reality. Now, there are a couple answers to that. One is, the Donald Hoffman method. Re- forget it. So it's there's no reality. It's all unreal in some sense. Then there's the phenomenological answer, the phenomenology answer, which is actually all you experience is real. It's real to you. Even if you're schizophrenic and you see a snake in front of you, that's real to you. But then you're, you actually took a different route, which I never occurred, which is, please stop using the word reality. Just let's forget about it. So am I making a correct summary? And if I'm incorrect, yes. just correct. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, uh, please stop uh, using the word reality uh, unlabeled and uh, uh, divorced uh, of context. Word reality. I mean, use use the word reality in each context. So it's like we should have reality sub A, reality yeah. sub B, yeah. and make sure yeah, that we're yeah. in okay. in this movie. This is real. This is real. This is false. But that's a movie. It's all false in 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 a different sense of real. So the the. The the real has a variety of meaning within the context in which you, uh, in which you you use it. So in a context, we give me a context, and I, I give you a, a much better definition of reality. Okay, in the context of the Miserable written by Victor Hugo, I can absolutely uh, uniquely see what is real and what is not real. What is real is what is written in the book. It's not real is what you add. It's not written in the book. Okay, in the context of the history of the United States, it's absolutely real. Maybe uh, when we can make a mistake, but we know that we make a mistake. So we know what is real, what is not real. That you know, George Washington announced becoming a king. Whatever, uh, whatever happens. Um, so, context by context, we have a we have a clean notion. Of, of of reality, which allows us to make distinction um, between real things and not real things. It's a unique word, real reality to reality, real, not real, outside all context, which I think is dangerous. All right. <laughs> yeah. So fast. So, yep. Yep. The information paradox. You said it's like falling in love with holography. Oh. And that the entropy inside a black hole can be different than the outside. So can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. Um, right now in the uh, community of physicists, uh, uh, there's been a, 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 a separation between two communities which have completely different opinions about the uh, black hole paradox. One community is convinced uh, that there's a problem. The problem is... Uh, uh, before quantum gravity, so before the end of the evaporation. And uh, the problem is due to the fact uh, that uh, the black hole shrinks and uh, people are convinced that the number of states of the black hole um, is bound by the area, uh, by the Bekistin Hawking um, entropy. And uh, therefore, uh, the problem is that the, the state outside seems to be um, uh, thermal and uh, um, uh, impure state. And uh, uh, for that to be possible, to save unitarity, uh, 
uh, information should be somewhere, and the only place we could be reasonably inside the black hole, but there are not enough states inside the black hole because the uh, horizon has shrunk. And this has created a huge, uh, a huge problem, and uh, uh, there are complicated solutions which have been studied today, and people are sort of getting convinced that this complicated solution are the, the way out. The other half of the community, which are most uh, relativists and not particle physics and people like me, um, uh, don't, just don't believe this story, absolutely. Because uh, to create this paradox, uh, you have to believe quantum mechanics, which is unitary, and we all expect quantum mechanics to be unitary. You have to believe uh, 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 that uh, uh, general relativity holds, and uh, in some reasons we don't expect quantum gravity, and many of us expect that. And you have to believe an additional assumption, which is the number of black hole states inside the black hole is bound by the area. And that has no strong ground. People got in love with the idea because there are calculations that allow you to describe a black hole in terms of a finer number of states bound by the area. But this is a description uh, of what you see from the outside as long as the horizon is an event horizon, it's a horizon forever. And the horizon of black hole is not an event horizon because at some point the black hole becomes very small, something happens. And at that point, it may very well be that the big information which is outside comes out, okay? And the confusion, the subtle confusion here, it's that uh, people uh, is used to say that the von Neumann entropy is bounded by the thermodynamical entropy. Namely, von Neumann entropy is in the the the, the the, the amount of information due to the entanglement between the inside two things. And the thermodynamical entropy, count the number of states if you interact thermally with something. And people say, well, of course the von Neumann entropy is bounded by the thermodynamical entropy because the thermodynamical entropy counts the number of states. If you don't have this state, you cannot have von, von Neumann entropy. But that's wrong, because uh, uh, if one part of, of the interior system is thermally disconnected, you can still have a big von Neumann entropy and a decreasing thermodynamical entropy. And that's exactly what happened in black holes. And people who are sort of blinded by over excessive taking a strong version of holography just don't see that very basic point and don't see that if you give a full description that includes what happened after the end of evaporation, you can have a phenomenon to be much larger than the thermodynamic entropy. So simply talking, the whole of the black hole shrinks, becomes smaller and smaller and smaller when the black hole evaporates, but the inside remains very big. There's a lot of information there, which is not lost when the black hole ends the evaporation. When you say the inside remains slowly big, comes out. the inside of... Yeah. The black hole. The black hole has a, it's, it's like a, a throat, yep. the horizon, and then there is an inside, which is very, very big. That's the point. I mean, you can have a, a very, very big spatial, sp space-like surfaces, like huge. Okay, and that's where the information is. And at the end of the evaporation, now we're in quantum gravity, and with loop quantum gravity, you can do calculations of what happened, 
and uh, you th there's, there's a quantum transition to a region in which the inside is still there and slowly it leaks out all the information. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a perfectly coherent picture uh, which shows that it's not true that there's a black hole information problem. The belief in the black hole information problem is based on a, a dogma, uh, has become a dogma which is not supported by, by anything, that the, uh, the number of states of black hole computed from the outside also include the, the information inside. In popular science, you always hear that when someone falls into the black hole, you won't see them, well, you'll see them freeze right at the horizon. And you'll see their watch frozen too. Now, if the black hole event, yeah. Yeah, you, it, it, this is, we don't know that because that depends on quantum gravity. See, that's, that's, exactly, the, that's exactly the problem. Uh, when time goes on, okay, you see what you see, somebody is crossing the black hole. So the person crossing the black hole, of course, crosses the black hole. I mean, nothing particular happened crossing the horizon. Just normal, normal time going by. But the light rays that it emits uh, get to you later and later and later and later. Okay. Now, if the horizon is an event horizon, so if, if the horizon stays there forever, yeah, you can go to infinity and you only see the person before crossing. But we don't know. In fact, the the horizon is not an event horizon. The horizon does not go to infinity because at some point the black hole becomes Planckian and that's where we're in quantum gravity. And when you're in quantum gravity, there is a quantum transition after which the information outside can go outside. Okay, So if you wait long enough, you see inside the black hole. Interesting. That's the point. Interesting. Okay, next one. Do you find that your ability to learn, let's say math and physics, has increased with age or decreased? Decreased. Decreased, much decreased. I, uh, when I was in my twenties, I could take a complicated, mathematically complicated paper and just sit down on a chair and read it through, and I would get everything easily. And then it slowly became more complicated. And now in my sixties, I have to struggle. I go slow. I read less papers. So my capacity to learn is decreasing, and also uh, I think my flexibility of thinking is going down. I tend to know much more things before. I have much more developed views before. I know more things. I see when other people are wrong because I know things they don't know. It's happened much more often than before. I mean, it's easy to see the mistakes of the others because, uh, because I know more things. Everybody getting older knows more things. So that's why all the people are wiser. But also, I am more stupid because I'm more trapped in my own thinking. I have more difficulty of coming out from my own thinking. What would you have done differently in the development of your theory? It could be as simple as I would have spent more time going for walks with Lee than sitting down, or I would have spent more time thinking about about holography, like ADS CFT correspondence, for whatever reason, or you would have spent less time arguing with your peer. Like, what is it that you would have done differently in the development of your current theories? Um, there have been situations in which. Uh, uh, people have raised objections to things I've done. Uh, I got convinced that these objections were wrong and I just ignored uh, that and just 
don't didn't bother respond. And uh, I I don't think I should have paid more attention to the objections because I did always pay very much attention to the objection that I, I read around. But I think it was a mistake not to respond and not to immediately sit down and try to argue in detail. Um, I I probably overestimated myself and, uh, and, and the field as a whole, thinking, oh, come on, I think that's wrong and people will figure out by themselves. I, I, I try not to engage in debates and, uh, and discussions um, and, and go my own way. And something sometimes works very well, but sometimes has, uh, you know, created long misunderstanding so I should have more engaged with with criticism, trying to respond and be more, 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 more uh, part of the group and disc- debating with the group. Okay, this question comes from Stefan Alexander. He's a professor of theoretical physics, and I know he's a great guy. Great, great. He's the writer of Fear of Black Universe, Fear of a Black Universe, and the link to that is in the description. Also, I'll be speaking with Stefan, so that's either out or coming up. How does time play into quantum gravity? You've mentioned it plays into quantum mechanics. Does it play into quantum gravity per se? Um, it does not. I think that's a, a, that's the bottom line also in my book. Once you go to quantum gravity, uh, you better forget entirely the, the, the word time. Just forget about it. You have a bunch of variables which describe the gravitational field, the electromagnetic field, whatever fields are around, whatever is, it's, it's your ingredients. As far as we know to, today, these are the ingredients of the world. Electrons, quarks, uh, electromagnetic field, gravitational field. And uh, you have uh, relations uh, between these, um, which you think in terms of, uh, uh, there is a quantum region, if you want a space-time region, is a, and and outside, if if I if I see something around, what is the probability of seeing that? And you don't have to say uh, how much time has passed, which one is a time variable. That comes out naturally, because uh, if the classical limit of the amplitudes turn out to be correct, they just give general relativity. So in the classical limit, you have space times evolving, and then you can you know. Uh, time is just whatever passes around the time like world line. But in the fundamental quantum gravity theory, just forget about time entirely. Don't talk about that. Time is in, in the various meaning in which we we talk about them, uh, it's just something that happens at later approximations. The space-time comes at the large-scale approximation and oriented time comes from thermodynamics. In quantum gravity, the only temporal notion, it's very, very weak, is that you describe process. So what you describe is a process, a, a probability amplitude of some conjunction of variables uh, taking certain values. Okay, this question comes from Bernardo Castro. He says, Carlos says that everything is relational. You may have answered this before, but Carlos says everything is relational, nothing absolute. I agree that the physical, that is whatever's measured, is relational as experiments have shown, but that must mean that there is an absolute, some non-physical, non-measurable layer of reality underlying the physical. As you know, 
he's putting this in brackets, as you know, to me, that layer is mental. But Carlo, again, says everything is relational. So what is it? Relations and and so on and so on. That is turtles all the way down or relationships all the way down. How does the notion that everything is relational not lead to an infinite regress? It's turtles all the way down, in my opinion. And I think what, uh, what Bern, uh, I mean, uh, I, I think the basic, uh, I mean, I, I know, of course, uh, Bern, Bernardo's uh, uh, ideas, uh, he defended a rather strong version of idealism in which um, everything is mental. And uh, um, I think that the mental phenomena are not more uh, absolute, more grounded, more basic, more universal than uh, the um, the physical, what we call the physical phenomena. In fact, I think it, if if there is a a dependence relation, the dependence relation is the other way around. So, um, if we want to understand mental phenomena, we understand them better. Uh, starting from physical facts and from that deriving mental phenomena. Um, the other way around doesn't work, in my opinion. The other, the other way around leaves us the impossibility of doing science. We don't derive physical phenomena from mental phenomena, but the other way around we do. So of the two, uh, physical in a large sense, uh, I don't mean material, I, I mean physics, uh, systems interacting, having properties, uh, are more fundamental in the sense that they ground better um, mental phenomena. I think the the mistake of idealism is to uh, don't see uh, one of the main insight um, in uh, in in Buddhist philosophy, which is that the the mental is as illusory in, in Buddhist language as the external world. So the self is us less, um, less um, founded as this glass or this pen. Um, when I think about myself, the illusion of this is, the Cartesian illusion, this is evident, this is, uh, this is immediate, this cannot be discounted, it's wrong. Um, if there's anything, what is evident for me is this pen, it's not me. The me, it's a complicated cultural construct social construct, cultural construct, what I directly know about the world is that there is this pen. Uh, I, if you say, well, there is also you in the world, I say, oh yeah, it's also me, and what is me? I have to, I have to do through a reflection, a story of thinking. And if you read Descartes, who is a origin of this idea, Descartes never said that um, the self is immediate. He said, if you start doubting, then you go through a complicated cultural process of doubting, which is due to his culture, his philosophies. And this leads him to thinking about the self. And they think, if I'm doubting, then I'm thinking. If I'm thinking, there should be something thinking, as this thinking is the self. But the something thinking is not the self. It's an ensemble of the processes that matter does in my brain. So that's why I disagree with the idealism. Why is it that the mental states and the self are, are they equivalent in your mind? In your mind, are they equivalent? No, they're two different things. No, they're two different things. Uh, of course, they're two different things. The self is a, it, it's a, it's a, um, 
let's, let me not define this self. Uh, self is yeah. something sure, mental sure, states sure. is uh, other than mental states. But I think that um, what I said applied to both. And of course, uh, Descartes was talking about the self. Uh, some people talk about mental state. In the, in um, I think both are like chairs, complicated construction we use to describe what happens. Uh, you mentioned that science would be difficult or if not impossible to do if idealism was correct. Why can't we just say, see, for me, the way that I see science is that science doesn't presume a metaphysics. It doesn't actually say whether there's an immaterial or material or mental reality. It's, it's like a method. Now, people can disagree with the definition of science. Regardless, why can't idealism be correct and simply say, there are regularities to these mental states. And we see these regularities, these patterns of perception, and we call that physics. And we perform science at just as we do, or just as we currently do. No, sure, sure. No, I, I agree with you. In, in, in that sense, uh, um, science is neutral. Uh, but if I want to use science, uh, it, it, what I was saying is something much more, uh, much less philosophical. If you want, um, if I want you to, if I want to use science to make a story about how mental state can emerge from configuration of the brain, I have, uh, I have a, a a path that I can follow. In fact, many people are following today this path. I mean, there's a big uh, neuroscience uh, literature, very extremely interesting which is precisely describing how uh, mental states and the notion of a self um, can emerge in a, in a, in a the complicated uh, sort of uh, uh, neurological, biological, and evolutionary um, uh, story of our brain. So uh, uh, science allows us to make a, a story which is incomplete, but is in, in, in the working about how mental state emerge in the world in the same sense in which it allows us to make a story in which it, how is that a chair emerging in the world? I mean, how it's built by wood and, and, and built by a civilization that wants to sit down and so on and so forth. While, so, so there's, it can be done, that can be addressed by science. Um, the, 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 the idealism uh, uh, doesn't block science in the sense to say, well, okay, I have this mental uh, uh, perception or whatever, and, 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 and science describe them. But it doesn't allow to do the same story, to see how um, I can, uh, uh, out of a pure mental uh, uh, state, uh, necessarily reconstruct the, the opposite world. In other words, if I'm an idealist, just, I don't have any other uh, scientific program except the ones that are already there. I can describe chemistry, physics, uh, but not the relation between the mental and the physical. While if I am a materialist in some wide sense, in large sense, because narrow materialism always it doesn't work, I mean, the world is not made by stones, um, then I, I have an additional program that I can do, try to make sense of mental state uh, on the basis of physical systems. Why can't an idealist say, we can still do that? Look, instead of saying, how does mentality or how does mind states come about from non-mind states? Like, that's essentially what you were saying before. 
why don't we just say, well, it's all mind-like, it's all pan-psychic in some manner, but certain configurations of this mind state, which you can translate as matter, certain configurations of this matter amplify the already existing consciousness. So you can still perform neurobiology and neural correlates in the same manner. So why does thinking of the world idealistically preclude that? I see it as just, well, you can just say, well, we want to know what configurations produce what states of consciousness and what levels of awareness and levels of self-consciousness and so on. I don't know anybody in neuroscience that thinks it. Uh, no, that's not true. There are people in neuroscience that may think that way. Maybe Tononi thinks it that way. Or, um... any, almost any of the theories of consciousness that I've found, and I've been studying this for this channel, it's like it can be applied to the universe, and then you find that there's some low-grade level of consciousness applied to the universe as a whole anyway. At least Tononi, I think he's moving in that direction. I think he said that his... IIT, I believe it's called integrated information theory, implies panpsychism in some weak sense. Either way, you understand what I was saying before. I'd, so you were making the claim that idealism precludes this understanding of the brain and neuroscience and so on, but I was saying I don't see it as necessarily precluding it because you can still study and just say why is it that this configuration of matter, read configuration of mind states, produce a larger mind state or a certain level of consciousness or a certain so on. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, I hope you don't think I'm fighting with you. This... I'm just telling you what occurs to no, you. No, 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 of course, of course. Okay. No, no, of course. In fact, you're, 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 you're right in what you say. Um, you're probably right. I I maybe have not talked enough about that. Um, you're, you're, uh, you're bringing idealism together with a sort of panpsychism, right? It's a, you're, 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 Taking this in this direction here, yeah, some sort of pump psychism of, of, of that way. Um, uh, uh, look, yeah, I'm not sure what it means uh, to be a very weak level of. Uh, Conscious. I mean, I know what it means in Tononi theory. Okay, there's a quantity called phi, which have big values in the brain and slow values um, else. But that quantity has a very clean uh, uh, quantitative value determined by configurations of matter and the way matter might interact. So I know that Tononi himself is a sort of hidden secret idealist <laughs> or uh, even a little bit panpsychist, but I'm not sure his theory is, because uh, if his theory was uh, so, uh, it would not be possible to quantify uh, uh, consciousness on the basis of... Uh, a specific configuration of matter, or possibility of interaction of matter. So that's what's here's a ground there. And the ground uh, is, uh, uh, you know, this physical system interacting and affecting one another. And out of that, he says, in certain configuration, this behave in a way that we call consciousness. So I think his theory, it's far more materialistic than even what he would like to think. Remember I was saying, I'm, I'm wondering, oh, 
there's some way in which that's correct, some way in which that's correct. We were talking about this ecumenical quality. When it comes to, what was his name? Tononi, right. When it comes to Tononi. Tononi. Now, I know his theory isn't this. It's not as simple as, let's imagine billiard balls, and they bounce off one another in certain complex interactions these billiard balls model and that creates consciousness let's imagine it's but let's imagine it's as simple as that then as you were saying what's more fundamental the nodes or the vertices sorry the edges or the nodes well then i'm wondering hmm imagine tononis was as simple as that that is as simple as certain billiard balls and they interact so it's the relationship that produces the consciousness and the balls are fundamental but then Earlier, you were saying, well, you can also view it as the relationships are fundamental. So I'm wondering if in that sense, see, the non-dualists don't like when I say this. I'm wondering if in some sense, physicalism and idealism can be brought together as twin sides of the same coin. Yes. Uh, yes, it's, it's a good point. The, then, then the question is, what do we mean by mental? Right? If by mental, uh, we mean... Uh, uh, things going on in the mind of uh, uh, people like humans or maybe uh, mammals or maybe um, uh, maybe uh, uh, all animals with neuro neurons which is larger than mammals uh, then uh, I don't think this might be sufficient to describe what happened on a galaxy uh, if by mental we mean something that might going on everywhere, even when there are no animals, no neurons, nothing like that. Then mental, it's an extremely vague notion, which I'm not sure what it means, if not just a vague analogy that uh, somehow uh, that analogy might even be useful, but uh, because again, um, I think the naive materialism is wrong. I mean, the the, the uh, has been shown wrong by science. The the um, sort of 18th, 19th century idea that there is a perfectly uh, full description of the world in terms of little stones moving and bouncing one another, pulled and pulled by forces. Uh, that's not science. There's, physics has moved away from that. The the because of quantum mechanics, because of field theory, because of quantum field theory, and so on and so forth. Uh, so the world is far more complicated than that. And if, if you take, if in particular you take relational quantum mechanics seriously, you think in terms of relations and how things affect one another. Now, you want to call this relative uh, properties mental? You might, but then it's a name. It's a name which is, uh, I, I don't see what happened, what, what adds um to the uh, to our understanding, uh, and and what interpreting this. So in other words, I, I think I'm a monist. Monist in the sense that I don't think there are two different kind of phenomena. I'm, I'm a monist, like in the sense of Bertrand Russell. There are mental phenomena and there are physical phenomena. Mental phenomena is that oh, I see white. And there's a physical phenomena that there's a thing moving down there. I think these are all phenomena. They all belong to the same big class that should be explained by, we, we understand more and more about all of them, but they're not two different worlds. So if you're telling me, look, uh, at some elementary level of this, this thing, this very, very, very general way of this understanding about the world, we have uh, the distinction between the two 
evaporates, I'm happy. Yeah. But is that idealism at this point? Idealism is a strong way of reducing one to the other. Uh, like, you know, old 19th century materialism is a strong way of reducing one to the other. Um, yeah. Have you thought much about the hard problem of consciousness? Yeah. So what are you? I don't believe it exists. All right, let's hear it. It's a confusion. I think it's a confusion. My my take on the hard problem of consciousness, uh, this is David Chalmers, uh, uh, is that if you read Chalmers, uh, the point is about, we believe that uh, there is a hard problem of consciousness because it is conceivable for us, say, to think there is a zombie. Right, so think there is the same physical configuration, but nobody inside, and that shows that even if we understand the physics completely, there is something missing. So this is based on what is conceivable to us. So the problem of uh, the hard problem of consciousness, uh, it's a problem that comes from taking strong what we find conceivable, not conceivable. So the kind of uh, intuition we have a worldview right now. But the kind of intuition that we have about the worldview right now is exactly the kind of thing that science shows wrong every step of the way. So the, the hard problem of consciousness shows that we have some wrong intuition because nature has produced us uh, uh, by solving the easy problem of consciousness, not the hard problem of consciousness. So. Um, the easy problem of consciousness, of course, is very hard, which is how the brain works. <clears throat> but I am deeply convinced that if you take a copy of me, okay, equal, same nose, same hair, same neuron, same atoms, same molecules, same photons, exactly the same position, I'm conscious, my copy is conscious. It's just no way for me to conceive that I could be conscious and the copy of me could be non-conscious. So therefore, if we understand how the thing works, we understand what it means, what I'm saying when I'm saying I'm conscious. I don't believe there's a hard problem of consciousness. I think there's a very hard, easy problem of consciousness, namely understanding this... Uh, this uh... You see, we don't understand thunderstorm well. If you, if, you, if you talk to people doing climate science or, or meteorological science, not climate science, a thunderstorm is not yet understood. It's a very complicated phenomenon to understand because there's electric thing, magnetic thing, chemical thing, it's all sort of rapid, uh, um, uh, hydrodynamics is horrendously complicated. So what exactly happened with the thunderstorm is not understood, okay? Does this mean there is a hard problem of thunderstorms? No, it means that it's a complicated thing, okay? Does it mean that it's Jupiter you know, the, 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 the flashes, the, the lightnings are the rage of Jupiter. I mean, no, you don't think there's Jupiter there. I think it's just we just don't understand what's going on. So I see, I don't see the difference between thunderstorms and uh, the human mind and consciousness. Let me see if I understand this correctly. If we were to imagine duplicating you, then you don't know or it's it's unclear how that duplicate would be not conscious uh, uh, the reason i'm saying is that because uh, uh chalmer one of the strong arguments for the existence of the hard form of consciousness in his book 
is to say, well, imagine you have a zombie. A zombie is somebody that believes like me, has the same aspect of me, has the same neurons as me, the same synapses as me, the same uh, uh, physics as me, exactly the same physics, including down to the atomic level, but there's no consciousness. So he says, imagine this thing, okay? And look, if you can imagine that, it means you can imagine that consciousness is separated from the physical, something else, something above the physical, because you can have the same physical with or without consciousness. So this proves it. So he proves that consciousness is something separate from the physical on the basis of this zombie argument. Think that there is a copy of you, um, which is, uh, there's nobody inside. There's no self-person. But if they, there was a um, exact copy of me, I, I wouldn't understand what it means there's nobody inside. I could talk to him. Hey, Carlo too, how, how do you feel? I mean, I'm the right one or you are the right one. He could fight about that and, you know, make jokes about that. Of course, it wouldn't make any sense to know which one's the right and which one's the false. Um, so he would be conscious under all possible ways that I couldn't understand consciousness. So his proof is based on an intuition that I don't have, the existence of zombies. Have you ever played virtual reality? Like put on a VR headset? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit, a, a little bit, yeah. Okay, the reason why is, reality. I don't find it so inconceivable. I can imagine putting on a VR headset and seeing my wife or seeing you or even myself and even being able to look in someone's brain and it's generated with a computer. Of course, I would have no idea. Like, we can just, we can, we can, what's the word? Procedurally generate. So we can procedurally generate the brain as I zoom in and zoom out. I can't even do that physically. Like, I can't zoom into your brain physically. But regardless, I don't see it as, totally inconceivable that there can be this simulated copy that it itself we would say is not conscious and it can talk i can touch it and see the blood fall out from wherever i'm touching with my scissors or whatever maybe why is it inconceivable to consider a philosophical zombie even in vr well let's let's push it if in vr you could uh, uh, create a person and this person doesn't just look like a person and you touch him and, and blood comes out, but also answer your questions and also have a memory and also have a, uh, a way of reflecting and, and everything and, uh, and, and blah, 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 blah. And all the memories and all the complexity of me, I think that whatever computer is implementing all that, you know, it has memory, it talks about, I, I remember that, I'm this, I'm that, I see you, that's his, uh, a real person. How about let's remove the memory and the reflective characteristics? Because there's some people who are, have, are mentally challenged by birth. They cannot develop a reflective property, I mean, even babies. So let's imagine that. We would say a baby is conscious. A baby can feel. A baby has no memory. So let's imagine this this baby has no memory. So let's simulate that then. Uh, I and again, think I hope, that... I hope you don't feel like I'm, I'm, I'm attacking. I'm just telling you what occurs to me. I'm sorry. No, no, no. Of course I like okay. it. <laughs> I like this. Um, okay. So feeling uh, it's... Uh, um... Philosophical babies instead of philosophical zombies, just the zombie babies. So you mentioned memory and reflective capabilities. I'm just saying, remove that. Right. So um, 
I think that uh, uh, let's separate the question in, in, in two. If you if you have a uh, so let's forget virtual reality for a moment. If you have a um, a an artificial baby um, that behaves like a baby and uh, and uh, in all the complexity of a baby, I think it, soft, it suffers. It would suffer. I would not hurt it. I, I would resist from hurting it. Of course, if, if you give me a little robot, uh, which when you kick in, it says, ah, yeah, okay. Yeah. I would kick it because <laughs> I know that there's a huge difference between that robot and a baby. But is the actual difference that uh, establish my, uh, my believing that there's suffering or there's not after, uh, suffering? If, if it would, uh, because I think that suffering is nothing else than just, you know, the, the baby having a, bo a body, a brain. Hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. And, and, and all these things, and that generates sufferings. Uh, so... You know, Descartes is so, I don't know if it's a full story or a real story, but he, he believed that only humans have consciousness. He would kick his dog because he thought that, uh, I, I don't know if it's true, uh, because I, I read that he was very attached to his dog. So the things, <laughs> the thing wouldn't, wouldn't go together well. Um, but if, he, if it is true, I think it was a mistake. I don't think there is any dog suffering less uh real as a mental state than a human uh, suffering. I mean, we, we, we might prefer killing a dog than killing a man, but that's a different story. Now, the virtual reality simulation of pain, uh, uh, you're right, that's more tricky. Uh, uh, because uh, um, because uh, uh, what does it mean that uh, uh, you have a software that simulates the entire body of the as a body uh, being hurt and suffering. That I don't know. 
That's just puzzling. Okay, now rapid fire again. Just a few more. So this Nickel NS, and he wrote the word, he or she wrote the word Phi Econ. I don't know if that means physics economist. Regardless, he or she said, I want to thank Carlo Rovelli a lot. When I was doing my master's 14 years ago, I ended up with a similar idea as relational quantum mechanics, but I didn't have the mathematical ability to pursue it, and I've been following him since. Question one. What is his view regarding the paper Quantum Principle of Relativity by Andres Dragon and Arthur Eckert? Are you aware of that paper? Quantum Principle of well, Relativity. Well, thank you. Thank you for what he or she says. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm not aware of this paper. So um, if, uh, if he or she thinks it's interesting, send me an email and I'm going to read it. I will send it to you. His question or her question number two is what is his view regarding the work of Brian Swingle? Uh, which syndrome is this one? It's the one of, uh, of, of... This Brian Swingle. I don't know. I don't know if that's a physicist. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know. Same. Okay. Good sir, Knight. I love Carlo. A great man to explain complex ideas simply to a person like myself. He said before that he took psychedelics when he was young. I think it was LSD. And it was a Satori moment, which helped him think about time and physics in novel ways. Has he done psychedelics since? And if so, has it given him any new insights or confirmed his theories in any way? Um, I did psychedelics in my youth a few times, I mean, I don't know, 10 times maybe, uh, no more, uh, 15 maybe. Um, and uh, then I have not uh, uh, done it since. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I, I will in the future. Um, nowadays, things. Uh, so the, what the world think about psychedelics is changing, it's changing very rapidly. So mm, things might become simpler uh, now. Um, it was important for me. It was a, it's a strong, very strong experience, like many people who had it say. Um, uh, Do you recall your dosage? Um, no. But comparing to descriptions, uh, which you find in literature, was certainly quite high. Oh yeah, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely high. Um, I mean, it, it, it compared to the strongest uh, uh, accounts of, of of similar experience that you find nowadays easily in 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 all sorts of literature. Um, you know. Uh, Steve Jobs, the, the head of Apple, said that taking LSD in his youth was one of the two most imp important and strong experiences of his life. I, I think I could subscribe that. It was very strong. Very, um, it definitely did not, I did not get direct physical ideas by taking LSD. So I don't uh, suggest, you know, take LSD and so you write good paper in physics. That's not the way it works. Um, I was young. And it was many, many years from there to, to the actual physics uh, I did. However, uh, I believe it's true that uh, it did affect my way of thinking about reality, especially um, in a sort of uh, liberatory sense. I mean, sort of how I came out, I was young, right? again, I, was, the, I guess the first time I was 16, I came out with from that experience, thing, thinking, wait a minute, what we usually think about space and time and matter and energy and mind and me and the world and that, uh, 
that's just one way of thinking about things. Maybe there are all sorts of other ways of thinking about that. And my brain is uh, can, can view things uh, very, very differently for a while. So it might be possible to think differently. So I came out from that experience. Maybe it was also the culture at the time. Um, with an extremely large a priori flexibility about uh, possibilities. Right, right. Uh, I can imagine of, that. In terms of, you know, political ideas, moral ideas, social ideas, uh, but also physical idea. I mean, I, I had a distinctive sense that this organization in space and in time that we usually perceive about the world could just change with a little chemical. So we are chemical. So, you know, why should one be better than the other? <laughs> um, and this stayed with me. And I think that one first it gave me curiosity because when I later on, 10 years later, studied physics and read that, you know, Einstein discovered that simultaneity is not well defined. I said, well, about this, I, you know, I knew, I knew that things were more complicated than what they looked at the first side. Um, and then when I studied generativity and quantum mechanics, I was ready to accept very easily the idea uh, that the world could perhaps be profoundly different than our imagine of it. It didn't scare me, the idea, because somehow it's an idea that I had confronted. So in that sense, I think it was very useful um, for this. No more than that. Did you get to a state of atemporality where you didn't feel like there was time passing? Yeah. Or uh, eternity, yeah, yeah, even like infinite time passing? Yeah, yeah. that's one of the, uh, I say, more common um, things that people say namely that uh, time it's uh, uh, the sense of time is completely uh, destroyed in, in, in many ways. I mean, this, I would say the simplest way, which I remember very well from the very beginning, is just, you know, having the sense of watching the, looking at the, at, the, at the watch and then, you know, hours and hours later watching it again and uh, realizing that one minute had passed. Oh, wait a minute. I mean, all this happened in one minute. I mean, my God, which is one of the things people get scared, right? So one one of the things. I mean, the, the only the problem with LSD is you get scared, and you you get terrorized. It's, and it can be, be extremely bad. psychologically dangerous. Yeah, it can be very bad. It doesn't happen often, but it's. Uh, I think it's the only real problem of these things. The only real danger of these things yeah. is having. Uh, couple, a few very bad hours, which may look very well. And then one of the reasons you get scared is when you realize that, you know, you feel the time is passing, but it's not passing outside you, you feel trapped. You feel, uh -huh. oh my God, I'm here, I'll never come out of you. Okay, because here for me, time is, it's it's passing and outside is not passing. So that's one of the scary things. But that's extraordinarily strong distortion of the sense of how much time is passing. It's just one aspect of it because... Uh, I think the sense that people talk about that is a sense of completely destroying what it means by temporal organization of the world. And the other common thing is this distinction between yourself and the outside, right? It's a basic, it's a basic uh, category in our think about reality. You know, there's me and the rest. Me is me and the rest is rest. And this is something which... Uh, was very clear in my experiences is common in many reports of this experience is that you use the sense of you as a self separate distinct from um from the rest it's very strong it's very physical the lsd experience is a very 
it's it, it's a very uh, powerful thing. In fact, I remember spending days and days after that, sort of under the shock. It was not bad, but it was also disturbing, tiring. I mean, my mind had kept going back to that. Well, what has happened? I mean, just, oh my God, what what has happened? Where am I? Who am I? What is? Um, not unpleasant for me. It was never been unpleasant. It has always been pleasant. Uh, very pleasant, extremely pleasant. I had, uh, I, I faced it without preparation. But my friend who was with me, who had no preparation and no experience either, actually said the right thing at the very beginning and was near to me. Um, the right thing being, don't be scared, whatever happens, don't worry, just let it go and uh, uh, just don't resist and just be aware that then you come back and whatever happens, you, you back yourself. So um, that's very reassuring because he said exactly the right thing. The moment in which I got scared, I, I remembered that and said, okay, I'll trust him, I'll let things go and let this strange experience go, go over you. Um, I loved it. It stayed with me. And somehow in the moment in which I'm in deep shit, <laughs> which we all go through in our life, I remember that moment and there is, it's, it's calming to me. It's just a good, like, I look at my hands the way I looked at my hands in that. And I, I have a sense of uh, separation from reality and, uh, and the beauty of reality, the start of the beauty of reality in front of me, just how it is, uh, um, which I remember as a gift of that particular moment that stays with me all my life. Was it a moment of utter peace or euphoria? Like what was what would be the word that you would characterize it? These people would say positive, but there's so many different senses of the word positive. No, serene, we're not calling, right? No, we're not called peace. We're not called serene. I was not called euphoria either. Um, I don't know. Emotionally, it was uh, completely overwhelming. Uh, a surprise. Uh, and a sense of violent, almost joy at some moment. Oh, wow. Of you overwhelmed by the beauty of things. And like seeing things for the first time. It's a strange thing, like, like if I was, oh my God, I've never seen that. But this is just, you know, a hand or a tree, a leaf, anything. Um, and by overwhelmed by the beauty of it and be aware that, you know, this is just a leaf and this, I, I could look at it as an incredibly beautiful thing. It's just me and that's my heart opening up and just exploring. But it's notoriously hard to describe those experiences. Everybody says so. so and now there is a growing literature because finally scientists can study these substances after it was forbidden to study these substances for 40 years. It's completely stupid because why should, you know, people study poisons or, you know, heroin. Why shouldn't study these substances? Um, so I hope that now the, the regulatory body uh, take away this silly yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, for, forbidding uh, studying these things. So it didn't directly help you with physics, but it helped you with entertaining ideas that other people would consider unpalatable, such as time yeah. doesn't exist or so-and-so is relational rather than real. Exactly. Exactly so. In other words, 
Lee Smolin, you need to give Lee Smolin some LSD to dissuade him of his ideas of the primacy of play. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to yes. read between the lines. Okay. <laughs> last two questions. Last two. Good to. Do you know who Whitehead is? Alfred North Whitehead? Yeah. Okay, so this question comes from Aaron Haidari. He says, Ravelli seems to reflect a lot of the pan-theist process philosophy that Whitehead talks about. I wonder if he's familiar with Whitehead and what he thinks of this more organic view of reality. Yeah, uh, well, um, I I got to know Whitehead precisely because uh, other people already pointed out similarities, uh, um, especially uh, thinking reality as a process, if not that entities, uh, um, entities with property, but the happening of things. So. Um, processes before things. Um, the, definitely there is this resonance and this similarity, and I'm sure that's, you know, my way of thinking might have been affected by, by him or by people who were affected by him. Um, so I read, I, I started reading uh, some of his books because of that, because people pointed out these um, analogies. And I, I, I saw the analogies, I saw the similarities, I tried to get something useful from it, but there is a size, there is a, a, an aspect of it which I don't connect to, um, uh, which is this more organic or even spiritualist. Um, right, there is a, somehow the way he faces the problems, I, I, I couldn't, rec in spite of definite uh, similarities in the, this main idea that uh, we, we we describe the world as a process but not but but I'm a deeply a physicist um, a physicalist I, I think that the, the the physical description of the world that we have now it's it's, it's very good as it is um, it doesn't need to um, uh, to be reinforced by uh, by other pieces. It has to be better understood, perhaps. Uh, and and I try to read what we know about the world at that level um, from the physics itself. And I think it's not contradictory with a higher level description of the world, okay, with the ones given by biology, by sociology, by psychology, by, you know, everything. I think there's, a, there's coherence. We don't understand many of the intermediate steps, uh, but it's coherent between these uh, different pictures of, 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 of the world. Well, of course, we need the higher level ones because uh, because we cannot I cannot describe my girlfriends with using Maxwell equations. That doesn't work. Uh, but there's no contradiction between she being made by atoms uh, governed by the Maxwell equations, uh, and you know she being somebody I love and she loves me, and we interact on the level of our uh, emotions. Uh, they're just different different levels of description. Some which works better as some aggregate of things, and some which works better. Um, and and uh, I don't see any a priori contradiction between that, and there is no need to um, to add higher level notions to the fundamental notions. When it comes to the problem of quantum gravity or theories of everything or grand unified theories, do you think that what's missing is a whole conceptual paradigm shift, or is it just it's a mathematical complication? It can be solved without changing our view of what reality is much. Like, what do you think is holding us back? Which one is it? 
I think it's, there's nothing holding back. I think we have theories of quantum gravity, and they might be right. Um, so we don't need to go look for new ideas in quantum gravity. We have to we go we have to go try to figure out if the ideas we have are good or bad. Um, I think this idea that oh, quantum gravity is such a mystery that we need some new idea. Why do we need some new idea? I mean, we have theories. The reason we're not sure is that we cannot test them, not because they're wrong or they're bad. Loop quantum gravity is one. I don't want to say this is the right theory because it might be a wrong theory. Like another one may be right. Or, or maybe we haven't yet, you know, understood the relation between this. Or maybe, I mean, I, I have reasons to think that string theory is not good and loop quantum gravity is good. But uh, for quantum gravity itself, we have decent theories of the, the missing stuff, the piece, pieces we don't understand well. But I don't share this idea, oh my God, we're missing a big idea. We're not missing a big idea. To articulate something like loop quantum gravity, you need a big conceptual shift because you know, there's no background space, no background time. As I said before, you have to accept the idea that the fundamental description of the world, you don't use a time variable. So it's already there and has been worked out. It's, 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 it's decades of discussions that have come out with a, a possible story we have more than one possible stories because there are other alter possible alternatives. There's, you know, asymptotic safety, the string theory, and and, and others. Uh, but we have theories about quantum gravity. What we miss is, you know, filling up details. You know, look, quantum gravity is hard to do calculation of scattering. String theory is hard to understand how you come down to four dimensions. Nobody really has done it yet. Uh, the the you know the schemes, ideas, but nobody goes from the big theory down to the to the standard model. Um, I, I would not look for other, why should we look for other ideas that then we just, you know, put them in a drawer and, and we don't know how to, uh, we need smart ideas for checking those theories. And, and that's what many people are doing, working on black holes, working on early universe, trying to see if some of the theories we have can be tested. Just so you know, that question was from Dong Hyun Yoon. I just wanted to make sure to say that. And the last, last question is Craig Reed, TCR. I'd be curious to know what he thinks of Nima Arkani Hamed's Amplituhedron and his lecture on the end of space time. I don't think I've ever heard Rovelli comment on it. Nima is great. Um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a powerful thinker. He's a great mathematician. I had, uh, I remember a very good uh, uh, afternoon in Princeton talking with him. Um, <clears throat> I... There's a book that just came out, um, which is uh, it's a big, thick book with interviews of people in uh, uh, quantum gravity uh, of all different. Uh, I can just look it up if you give me a keyword so I can tell the audience what it is. If it is sitting here, let me go and get it. Yeah, great. Conversations on quantum gravity. Wonderful. Edited by. Jacom Armas, A-R-M-A-S. And uh, it's, it's a big, thick book um, of interviews, detailed interviews of uh, a large uh, number of people um, doing quantum gravity. It's a, it's a bit boring because it's a big thing with everybody, you know, same questions. So to, but I'm going systematically through it <laughs> and reading all of it uh, because I'm curious to actually know what the various people. And it's remarkable. They're very diverse ideas. And I read uh, uh, the one of Nina 
uh, Arcadiamed uh, in, in detail, of course, um, because it's alphabetical order, is what Arcadia is the first. <laughs> um, I'm just almost halfway, past halfway through the book. And uh, so I'm, I'm thinking while reading the various uh, people, I'm curious to know what the, all the people think. I'm, I'm reading, and of course, I'm I'm checking what they say with respect to what I think, and I'm trying to get the ideas that I don't know and trying to argue. Uh, so it's a very good exercise for me. Um, now, I think that uh, he belongs to um, that uh, part of the community who um, has fell in love with the uh, Maldacena idea of the book boundary, and then later on has given a sort of an ideological basis of that <laughs> um, by an argument that says that uh, in quantum gravity, we have to go to infinity uh, to, um, to define the theory because there are physical reasons for which we cannot uh, make a measurement in the bulk, so to say. Uh, so all the actual measurements are... Uh, and uh, in fact, in the book, he articulates that because it's, it's good, because he, he explains his, you know, his deep motivations for doing that. Now, I'm convinced that this argument is wrong um, uh, because uh, it presupposes the space-time and uh, uh, because uh, it, uh, um, it, it, it mixes... Uh, uh, the need for decoherence for making measurement with uh, the distance in space. So they, I think it's technically wrong. And, uh, but this is, has become a dogma in, uh, in, in his world, especially in Princeton, um, that you can only describe things from, uh, from a very large distance, from a syntactic distance. Uh, so he's going entirely in that direction. And that's why he doesn't think that loop quantum gravity might work because loop quantum gravity is a description of quantum space-time locally in, in, in a small region. So I'm, I'm here, I, I, I make an experiment, a quantum experiment, and I compute what comes out without need to go to a syntopia. Um, at, at, uh, so, uh, you know, these people are going, doing technical work, but that's the assumption uh, on which also his work on the, on the um, scattering amplitudes, uh, it's good, but it's not. It's not in the four-dimensional generativistic world in which we live. So, uh, I I don't think that the solution of quantum gravity and the property of quantum gravity is in fancy mathematics. Um, I think it's in just writing the things properly. I mean, there is a look quantum gravity defines scattering amplitudes. They are very hard to compute, uh, but they're there. Uh, and uh, does that without going to the boundary inside space-time. Uh, and the objection he has to look onto gravity, I think they're, they're wrong. I wish we could, uh, you know, with all these people, I wish we could sit down and uh, maybe I'm arrogant, but I think I could convince them that some of the assumptions that they are wrong. Of course, some of the assumptions I may have are wrong, and I wish they could tell me why. Carlo. Professor, thank you so much. It's been quite thank you, a, quite a journey, been, over four hours. It's been long, quite a journey. You pushed me to say a lot of ideas uh, <laughs> and uh, a lot of the things I've been thinking, so I liked, I liked very much. I loved this interview.
The podcast is now finished. If you'd like to support conversations like this, then do consider going to patreon.com slash C-U-R-T-J-A-I-M-U-N-G-A-L. That is Kurt Jaimungal. It's support from the patrons and from the sponsors that allow me to do this full time. Every dollar helps tremendously. Thank you.